They have disturbed the resting place of the ghost of Nahala, a renegade who never accepted peace with the whites, and he sends his messages to them. Dr. Kay Foster, in charge of the excavation, is not spared. She, too, is haunted. I'm not going to leave you alone with... What is that? <laughs> Only one ritual will save her from his spell. Watch it on Ghost Dance.
That song is called Misteco by the indigenous band Simican. The name of uh, uh, Simican, it basically means uh, the duality of life and death in the indigenous Nahuatl language. Uh, the band was formed by vocalist Tecutli and drummer Tipoca uh, in 2006. They quickly uh, added some players, uh, most importantly, uh, Zamanike. Uh, he's an expert in the Nahuatl language and culture. Uh, he started out on bass, but eventually became their vocalist uh, and something of an onstage shaman, so to speak. Uh, Simicon uh, takes their interest in the pre-Hispanic Mayan and Aztec mythology uh, to a degree uh, previously unseen in music. It incorporates traditional wind and percussion instruments, not just as you know accents, but as really core elements to the music. Uh, they also take the stage, uh, if you've never seen them before, in this astonishing face and body paint uh, adorned with feather and bone headdresses and armor that honor uh, the old school uh, traditional Aztec uh, uh, tradition, regalia. Of course, they're a metal band, so they, they got to push things to sort of guarish <laughs> extremes at times. Uh, for a visual reference, there, there's a YouTube video of uh, Zamanike dressed like this black metal Aztec priest, and he's, uh, quote, sacrificing, end quote, uh, <laughs> a victim on stage. Uh, he basically uh, puts his uh, hand through his beating chest, uh, pulling out his heart with blood squirting all over the audience. Uh, the best visual that I can think of is, uh, you know, that scene in Indiana Jones uh, in Temple of Doom with Mola Rob when they're doing the uh, the thuggy cult uh, uh, sacrifice there. Uh, in the, uh, the the palace, but anyway, uh, he sort of holds it up, and you know uh, the the heart's still beating, and, and blood's coming out of it. But uh, Simican, uh, their album titles uh, and stage names are in Nahuatl, but most of the lyrics are growled in Spanish. Um, you know the reason why, I guess. You know, at the end of the day, Nahuatl is is really only spoken by a small percentage of people. And only in the center of the country, uh, and that that comes from Raúl Lucido the, of Metal Mexico, uh, and it's an organization that promotes Mexican metal bands. So, if you were to make an album in fully Nahuatl without knowing what people will understand, it won't really have the same impact as if you put it in Spanish. So, I, I put the uh, lyrics into Google Translate. And then I discovered that actually, if you go to their website, uh, Simicans, they actually have all the lyrics translated for you. So I'm going to try my best to, to you know, uh, uh, translate the lyrics to you uh, in Spanish, from Spanish to English. So like we said, the song is called Misteco. And um, the first line, it goes something like this. It's created by the Blue Eagle, uh, five lizards, sacred semen, rain and sun. To your back in shadow, the bloody jaguar, insider, conqueror, you changed life for magic. The sovereign of death from the place of the skull, painted face, sacred bone punch, King Tutuptepec, uh, venerated and visited, forging the alliance. Cross the sea with your two allies, where the sky is on fire, you open the portals, deities and mythic cities destroy the conquest of the sacred land. To Quesa Palace, dwelling in the sun, stunned, uh, music, scary, the lord of death, paint your face and take out your heart, 
You go up to heaven with the first ancestors, recognized by gods of a thousand empires. Conqueror, eight deer, Misteco, Jaguar Claw. And that is basically the lyrics of the song. If that does not make you want to go out and punch a, a white person, I don't know what would. That is amazing, those lyrics there. Uh, with the visuals and, and everything, the percussion. I mean, really, the, the, the music is really you know, the, the driving force behind the band because you hear those traditional wood instruments, those traditional percussion instruments. And it's just something about that, you know, in a modern setting, um, you know, kind of amplified that, that, you know, amplifies you. It gets you pumped up. So do yourself a favor and, and check them out. They are awesome. So Legabasji, this is Turtle Boy uh, coming to you live, not from the Sweat Lodge Fitness Center. I am um, uh, in an undisclosed uh, native location uh, at this point uh, here in Indian Territory. Sort of like my very own native bat cave, I guess. There, there may or may not be a working television on top of a, a broken television. There, there may or may not be some uh, uh, blankets uh, for, for, for uh, curtains. Uh, it may not be uh, the air conditioner uh, leaking, uh, you know, air, the window unit leaking on the floor. Uh, but that's, that's neither here nor there. But I wanted to welcome you to the fourth episode of uh, Skoden Cinema. Uh, this month we're doing Ghost Dance. And uh, we're going to talk a little bit today about the, the movie, we're going to talk a little bit about the history of the ghost dance, and why in the world would you want to call your movie the ghost dance, um, just based on the tragedy that befell uh, the Sioux. So we're, again, we're going to talk about that here in just a little bit. But before we get to that, I wanted to kick off the council meeting with a couple of smoke signals I got. Uh, the first one I got was off Instagram, which, again, if you're not following us over there, you're really missing out. I mean, right now we're, we're doing the, the four weeks of, of uh, Halloween giveaway uh, contest. Uh, last week I gave away a couple of War Pony stickers, the uh, uh, Humbucks J, uh, uh, hashtag Humbucks J stickers uh, for, for all my Muskogee listeners out there. And uh, this week we got some cedar bundles and uh, like some mini bundles and and uh, sage bundles as well. And you know, I, I really want to say, you know, the, the the sage bundle giveaway. It's really not really about you know trying to garner listeners or likes or anything like that. It's really more about you know natives trying to help natives who are struggling right now. I know I got a few emails you know that had nothing to do with the podcast with a lot of my friends you know just having a hard time right now, and I just wanted to be able to you know give you guys prayers and and, and blessings, and you know I'll, if I'm in a position to help, you know I definitely wanted to do that. So if you know anybody out there that's struggling. You know, reach out to them. Let them know that you're listening. That's really the best thing that you can do do for people. But anyway, like I said, we got some uh, other giveaways coming up later in the month. We got some T-shirts and some other stuff. So follow us over on Instagram. Follow us over on Facebook. You can sign up for the email at scodincinema at gmail.com. Um, you're missing out. We got some, like I said, a lot of bonus content that, that you may not be getting here on the show because I know a month to month is kind of a long time. But the first smoke signal I got came from uh, Sage and Cinema, and he writes, uh, I got to the end of the first episode, and so far it's awesome, man, really. There's a ton of similarities being raised on pop culture, film, and everything. The indigenous influences that we found throughout our childhood, even down to asthma. It's great stuff, and uh, I wanted, we found 
I can't talk today. <laughs> the indigenous influences we found throughout our childhood, even down to asthma. Great stuff. And that's what I was wanting to make a podcast about, basically, too. A focus on film, the love of film, indigenous film influences, past and current events of our people, just everything. And it's great to see like-minded, a like-minded brother bringing good stuff to light. Uh, sage and cinema so Mado for writing man and uh i can honestly say you know i've always been a bit of a film geek uh you know just growing up and you know when it came time to do some research for the kind of films that i love i quickly found out there was basically a black hole of information out there i mean you got you might get a little mention here or you might get a nod here or you might get a screening here maybe an interview here or there but you know the Really, there was not much outside of native publications that were addressing the issues that, that I was wanting to, to know more about. So that's kind of began my journey. And um, that's kind of what got me started was I just saw a void that wasn't being filled, the, you know, and that's that's what I started to do. So if you want to start a podcast, do it, man. I mean, trust me, I'm 45 years old and I don't know Jack about Jack here, Bubba. But uh, it's pretty obvious at times, <laughs> I'm sure. But uh, this has been a, a wonderful experience. And I love, you know, getting to share my passion with y'all. Um, even if it's just like 20 people out there. Hey, <laughs> uh, it opens the doors, though, uh, for further discussions. Plus, you know, I get to meet and interact with people like you and uh, listeners. And, you know, I, I really just appreciate, you know, uh, you guys writing in. Uh, which brings me to the next smoke signal. The second comes from Ian uh, over at Native Film Talk, and it's another podcast focused on native and rep- native representation in film and TV. And I'm telling you what, it's it's an excellent podcast he's doing over there. Uh, I mean, if you like what you're hear hearing on this show, you're you're really going to flip your lid uh, for what he's got cooking over there. He he's focused not you know not really on individual natives. You know, well, not just native movies and TV shows. I mean, he's doing any type of film with a native uh, connection or, or even a native reference. Uh, I finished the episode on uh, Bong Joon Ho, Ho's uh, *Parasite*, and he's got some really amazing thoughts. Um, you know, about that film, and it never even really. I mean, I, I saw the film, and you know, I don't know. I just kind of took it at face value. I didn't really think too i wondered about it but i didn't really think too much about it you know like what was that all about but uh seriously bubba go listen to it uh you'll thank me i promise the latest episode i know that he said he just was going to drop was, was pocahontas and i can't wait for that one which i'm sure uh by the time that you're, you're hearing this it's, it's, it has uh but he smoked me a message on insta uh and he said that uh, i saw you had a podcast for native film on apple podcast and i stumbled across yours we totally, at the same time, had the same idea. Insane how that happened in parallel. I'm currently doing more recent movies, but eventually I'll make my way down the catalog and do some classics like Dances with Wolves, Last of the Mohicans, uh, Thunderheart, etc. He wants to know, do I have a focus for the native films that I'm reviewing, like inaccurate depictions, genres, and cultural representation? Uh, you know, full disclosure, I, I don't really have a, a focus. Like I said, you know, in the opening uh, episode, episode one, I just kind of, I like what I like, you know what I mean? Uh, I mean, I, one thing, I'm a, I'm a seasonal movie watcher, you know, if it's Halloween time, I'm watching them scary movies. And if it's uh, Christmas time, you know, we always got Christmas movies on and 
fall brings out you know other types of movies and fourth of summer movies and you know things like that i've always been a seasonal movie watcher um so i'm trying to to kind of follow that lead right now but i can't promise you that that's where the path i'm going to continue to take it's just one of those things where i see movies and i want to talk about them and i want to share them with you and that was one of the funny things that he and i you know had a side cast on i guess was about uh you know you got some really deep cuts you know when are you going to do a movie that i've heard about (laughs) but that's to me is sort of the focus of the podcast is to kind of dig up some of those gems that you either forgot about never heard about or or want to know more about so that that's sort of the the focus that i've got cooking over here so thank you so much for uh writing in ian and again his podcast is called native film talk uh, it's natives talking about natives. Um, it's it's wonderful, and I can't I cannot say enough about it. And it's always great, you know. Like we said, you know, natives helping natives out and uh, supporting one another. And you know, go go do it. Go listen. Okay. If you want to drop me a smoke signal, you can. There's several different ways you can reach me. Uh, you can message me at Scoden Cinema on Facebook, uh, Scoden underscore Cinema on Instagram, or email me at Scoden Cinema at gmail.com. Just keep the letters coming if there's anything that you want to know about or if there's anything that you want me to review or maybe something I missed, uh, you know, that's a good way to share uh, your own gems, you know what I mean? So anyway, email me, message me, whatever. Let's get cooking though, all right? I'm going to put some some water on these rocks here and, and start talking a little bit about 1982's The Ghost Dance. Okay, there we go. Got them hot rocks going. Uh, Ghost Dance, 1982. The tagline for this movie is, When you disturb the dead, you must pay the price. Dot, dot, dot. Uh, That's a pretty good one. I ain't gonna lie. That's pretty good. Uh, But it stars uh, Julia Motto, uh, who has no tribal affiliation, as Dr. K. Foster. Other credits that she has, nothing of any real merit. Uh, she worked primarily as a voiceover artist, uh, doing a couple of national and regional ad campaigns for radio and television. Uh, but she was the voice of uh, the National Geographic channel for a while. Uh, so she did all the, the bumpers for that. And she did several celebrity profiles for the E! channel. But I guess her really uh, only major claim to fame, if, if you if you really want to call it that, uh, she did voice a character on the old PC game Leisure Suit Larry 6 and 7. Oh, <laughs> I bet you didn't know that we were going to drop Leisure Suit Larry on this podcast. I, I bet that that those you old perverts back in the, the, the 80s know what I'm talking about with Leisure Suit Larry. But uh, we're not going to go into that. But yeah, she, she voiced a character on that. So, I, yeah, it's it's pretty much going to be this kind of movie uh, from here on out. Uh, the second lead, though, is uh, Victor Mojica, who also uh, has no tribal affiliation. And he plays Tom Eagle. And it's kind of funny in this movie, uh, every time they refer to Tom Eagle, they, they call him Tom Eagle. They, they don't call him Tom or, or Thomas or, or Mr. Eagle. It's Tom Eagle. So, uh, 
that's he plays Tom Eagle. Uh, other credits, he he was in a slew of classic television shows in the seventies and eighties, uh, including Six Million Dollar Man, Wonder Woman, The Rookies, uh, The Incredible Hulk, Hill Street Blues, Dark Shadows. Uh, but he's known by me probably for his portrayal of uh, Johnny Firecloud, which which is the film that really is the one the catalyst uh, that made me want to start even doing this podcast. So uh, he's not native; he's Puerto Rican, but he often portrayed Native Americans in his cinematic roles, and it's kind of funny. Um, he starts out, you know, uh, pretty good, but when he kind of forgets that. The Puerto Rican accent is, is definitely uh, a standout that you could pick out. You know, it's kind of funny because it kind of comes and goes. But uh, the next guy is Henry Ball, uh, B-A-L. He's Hawaiian, Polynesian. We're going to count that as indigenous. Uh, he plays Aranjo, and uh, then he becomes Nahala about a quarter of the way through in the first act. Uh, his other credits, uh, he was another actor who mainly did TV in the 70s. Uh, Kojak, Little House on the Prairie, Quincy, uh, Fall Guy, Remington Steele, T.J. Hooker. Uh, he portrayed Humphrey Bogart, though, on an episode on, of Highway to Heaven, which I found super interesting, just given the fact that he looks absolutely nothing like uh, him, Humphrey Bogart. So definitely going to have to hit YouTube and see if I can find that clip of him playing Humphrey Bogart. Uh, but he was in another resploitation classic uh, called Angry Joe Bass, and I know that is one that is definitely on my list to, to cover. Uh, it's all about water rights, believe it or not. It was made back in the 70s, land rights and water rights uh, back in the in the 70s, and it's called Angry uh, Joe Bass, which, again, it's, it's definitely we'll, – we'll do that one. Uh, but finally down here in, in the fourth lead is Frank Salcedo, uh, who was Mishiwa Wapo. Um, he plays Acasio, so we have our very first full Native American. Uh, he was the president of the Jay Silverheels Acting School in Los Angeles, and it was there that he discovered his true passion, which was acting. Uh, he made over 50 movies, and you know his big claim to fame is helping uh, other Native Americans uh, break into the film industry. Uh, Salcedo performed in movies such as Magic in the Water, Across the Great Divide, but probably my favorite role that he was in was in uh, Creepshow 2, where he played uh, Ben White, White Moon. Um, if you've never seen uh, Creepshow 2, that is definitely that one that I almost picked, but wasn't enough for me. And I think most people probably have seen Creepshow 2, but he plays uh, the, the, in the segment Chief Woodenhead. But he was also in Journey to Spirit Island. He was in Best of the Best 2. He was in Mighty Morphin Power Rangers, Lizzie McGuire. And he even went uh, fisticuffs with uh, Walker, Texas Ranger. The next one is uh, Patricia Albrecht. Again, no tribal affiliation. She plays Carol, the secretary. She's another TV voice actor. She was in Eight is Enough, Remington Steel. But she did portray Pizzazz. In the Gem uh, cartoon series in the 80s, she also voiced characters in Snorks and New Kids on the Block. So she did a lot of cartoon work, which I kind of thought was interesting. Uh, I can keep going with the cast down the line, but honestly, it's it's made up of a bunch of non-natives or, or just local folks that you don't know. I don't know. This is their one and only film credit. But the movie was written by Robert M. Sutton, and this is his only screenplay credit. And honestly, it's kind of a shame. Uh, we'll get to that. 
why I, I feel that way. But it was directed by Peter F. Buffa. Uh, and tribal affiliation undetermined because I've seen him in some uh, credits as Peter Buffalo on a few websites. But again, that's, that's undetermined whether he was native or not because I can't find any information on the guy. But he did go on to write and direct this crazy, wicked, smart television docuseries in, in 1985 called Mechanical Universe and Beyond. It's probably one of those shows that's kind of like Nova, uh, you know, as a kid that just makes you drowsy just, just reading the concept. Uh, Mechanical Universe, uh, the law of falling bodies, derivatives, inertia, vectors, Newton's law, integration, the apple and the moon, moving in circles, fundamental forces, gravity, electricity, magnesium, the Malikian experiment, conservation of energy, potential energy, conservation, momentum, harmonic motion, resonance, waves, angular momentum, torques and gyroscopes, Kepler's three laws, the Kepler problem energy, eccentricity, I can't say it, universe, guys, that all comes from the writer, the co-writer, and the director of Ghost Dance. Yeah, that, 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 he went on, obviously, he was too smart for his own good, and he went on to, to do that show, but I'll stop right there. But he also was the producer on a 1984 off-Broadway play called The Babe, which was based on baseball legend Babe Ruth. Uh, we flip in the the VHS. This is the the version I watched for for the rewatched for the podcast. And here's what the box description says on the back. It says, "Reckless fools have violated the sacred Indian burial ground. Now they must pay the price. Enter a world where anything is possible, where a resurrected Indian warrior seeks revenge for his people." Where the terror for his mission looms large around every corner, will a grave robber survive? Only the ghost dancer can tell. All right, I kind of messed that last part up, but uh, box description does not match the movie. Uh, He is a resurrected Indian warrior. I'm not sure the revenge part. Uh, we'll, We'll kind of talk about it. Uh, he basically kills the people that that uh, that that <laughs> unearthed him, I guess, that exhumed his body. Um, so we'll talk about that. But again, doesn't really have anything to do with uh, the ghost dance. But we're jumping ahead a little bit. Ghost dance. Uh, it it the, about the film, I guess, the film ghost dance. It kicks off in the uh, trappings that would appear again uh, about three years later uh, in Fred Olin Ray's. More notorious effort, scalps. If anybody knows anything about Fred Olin Ray, he is a exploitation uh, director. He did Franken. Uh, did he do Franken Hooker? I can't remember if he did or not, but I know he did a Hollywood Chainsaw Hookers. But uh, anyway, uh, if you haven't seen Scalps, do yourself a favor. Don't. <laughs> uh, you'll you'll want to keep it that way. It's it's pretty bad. But the story um, around this movie is based around a group of university hotshots, and they're on an excavation uh, to raise a grave from the Tucson desert. And once that happens, they make off into the night with the corpse uh, to a university under the guise of research. We meet a power-hungry medicine man. Uh, I, th- I think he's a medicine man um, who seems determined to raise the spirit of an ancient American Indian renegade from beyond the grave. 
uh, after hope after a hopelessly convincing magic spell, and I'm going to put that in quotes because um, that's what it looked like versus what they were probably trying to, to do. The evil spirit in, uh, possesses uh, the mystical conjurer, and the, he heads off into the desert on a maniacal rampage. Uh, unprovoked. Again, we'll talk a little bit more about it here in a second. Um, but however, we soon learn, though, that uh, there's something more sinister to the killer's motives as he begins closing in on our leading lady. Now, shockingly, there's not a ton of info on this flick. I know I just probably melted a few minds out there. I couldn't find anything. And I mean, I really tried hard. I... The, the movie was shot uh, at the University of Tucson, or excuse me, the University of Arizona in Tucson, and I even emailed them, and I emailed the the anthropological depart anthropology, excuse me, the anthropology department. I messaged, uh, emailed the, the museum there, and either I got no response, but um, the museum did send me a response, and they said that they had no idea what I was talking about. And have a great day, and that that was about it. Uh, I also emailed Colossal Cave Mountain Park, uh, Old Tucson Film Studios. Uh, no, no response. Um, I emailed uh, at the very end of the movie. There's a, a jewelry credit to uh, Contreras and Sons Fine Art and Jewelry, who made the pendant uh, that Nahala wears in the film, or that that, that Kay wears in the film. And I, I got a a. a email back from him um, that said that, you know, that must have been his dad, that he really wishes he would have asked his dad about it because he he had no idea uh, that his dad was even, you know, had any part of this movie. So nobody knows anything about it. Uh, I went back and looked at old issues of Fangoria and uh, Shock Cinema. There's, There's nothing on it. There's zero stats. There's not a mention, a nod, a paragraph. Nobody knows anything about this movie and that should probably say a lot right there and I was a little nervous when I decided to do it because like, I don't know what to talk about but uh, there are other similar theme titles that are, are have the same th- you know thematic elements um, Phil Smoot's Dark Power Frank Patterson's uh, Demon Warrior and uh, Diodato's uh, kind of hard to find Camping Terror uh, or Body Count as it's sometimes known but this one's a little different because um, it attempts to kind of interject the curiosities and intrigue of the native spiritual culture. Um, but they try to work them into the cliches of the slasher genre that were all the rage back in 1982. And full disclosure, I'm, I'm still a little split on the end result. I'm kind of riding the fence here of whether I like this movie or not. But before we move further, I want to just kind of probably that was kind of important to give you just a little explanation to some of the listeners on what a slasher movie is. Uh, you know, when you think of horror films, it's probably what comes to mind to, to most of the general public, but the reality is there's several subgenres in the horror category. I mean, you've got like monster movies, you've got like alien invasion, like sci-fi, you have psychological thrillers like uh, Silence of the Lambs, you've got splatter pictures like Texas Chainsaw. You've got uh, torture films, there's, there's comedy horror, gothic horror, like the Hammer films, teen horror, uh, etc. So the slasher movie um, is a type of horror film that involves typically a psychopathic killer of some kind. Sometimes they wear a mask, sometimes they don't. And um, the killer stalks and usually graphically murders or sometimes comically murders a series of adolescent victims 
usually in like a random, unprovoked fashion. Um, what was the very first slasher movie in cinema history? Uh, that's a question I think that's really t- that's been debated around the campfire for years. Um, it really depends on who you ask, I, I suppose. I mean, you, some people would say Mario Bava's Bay of Blood back in 71. Uh, the aforementioned Toby Hooper's Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Bob Clark's Black Christmas. Those both came out in 74. Those those are the ones that are often cited as the, you know, kind of laying the genre's foundation. But I've actually even heard uh, Psycho, uh, Hitchcock Psycho, thrown around before. But I think one thing that everybody can agree on, that the, the template that really provided the most cinematic uh, uh, outline for, for the slasher was John Carpenter's Halloween. And those uh, that template would be used again and again and again. And slasher films became more popular throughout the, the late 70s, early 80s. So when we, we think about a template of a good slasher, what am I talking about? Um, I think the best way is to describe it. I, I could do it no more justice than Kevin Williamson of, uh, wrote the Scream flicks and that Wes Craven directed. There's a character that he <coughs> has excuse me, played uh, called Randy, named Randy, and uh, played by Jamie Kennedy. And he really kind of breaks down the guidelines of the elements of a, of a good slasher movie. Uh, number one is sex equals death. Uh, you have sex, you die. <laughs> That's pretty much it. Number two, you can never drink or do drugs. Uh, number three, never, ever, under any circumstances, ever say, I'll be right back. Never, ever, under any circumstances, assume the killer is dead. Uh, those types of things. So back, though, in 82, when this movie comes out, Ghost Dance, the cycle was still really in more of like an infantile phase, um, completely unaware of, its, of the banalities. But the ghost dance sticks to the rule book pretty fairly adequately, and it underlines all the predictabilities that would become a trademark in years to come. Uh, despite making good use of gimmicks like the good old have sex and die routine, uh, I, I do think that kudos must be given to the scriptwriter Robert Sutton because he was trying to add a little more to it than just what was on the surface. He tried to add like a little puzzle, a little puzzle and plotting to the to the cinematic model. And the Ghost Dance is a is a relatively obscure film um, from the genre's early days, but its obscurity is, is I believe certainly undeserved. Because honestly, it's one of the more competent slashers that I've come across uh, in the last few years when viewed through that lens. Believe it or not, it's actually pretty good. It's not terrible. I mean, there's not really a, a ton of misguided native representation. I mean, overlooking the the, the, the name of the movie, Ghost Dance, um, which has you know really nothing to do with history. But they're not trying to rewrite the past uh, or whitewash the past. Um, you have to overlook the obvious mystical evil medicine man uh, element or the evil shaman which you know we'll, we'll, we'll get there um, and the white man is definitely the antagonist here and you know again looking at it through a black and white lens it's just just a story of good versus evil and the white people are just kind of caught in the middle of it. they caused it but then the Indians have to come together to fix it and it's you know it's like I said, it's pretty good. I mean, there's a lot of good things that I liked about it, and uh, I dare say there's moments in the film where the betrayals may be even spot on. But Peter Buffa's film is is well made, despite one or two jarring scene transitions or character flaws, notwithstanding. 
Uh, I watched this on VHS, and the transfer was really sweaty. Um, but you can tell that despite that, it's an exceptionally shot picture. I mean, you have tons of secluded desert landscapes, so that definitely helps. The atmospheric museum, which is really effectively imposing and surreal at night. There, there's a shot on location at the University of Arizona Tucson campus. Um, the Anthro- Anthropological Museum, and that's actually still there because I said I emailed them. And, uh, you know, two of the best films, uh, two of the best sequences in the film take place there. Um, really kind of dimly lit. And, you know, one involves uh, the double hackings of two people whose romantic liaison and an old stagecoach is rudely interrupted. And the other scene has Nahala, the evil renegade spirit, chasing Kay through the museum corridors. Uh, making their way down to the bird displays. And this leads to this really cool image, this really striking image of Nahala. And he's standing in front of the stuffed eagle, and or his taxidermied eagle. But he's all silhouetted, and, and the way it's it's shot, like his back looks like it's sprouted wings, you know, kind of lending the, uh, the idea, is he an angel from heavens or is he a demon from hell? Uh, it's it's one of the most memorable shots in the film and really thematically rich one as well. And uh, there's actually a third standout visual that we're treated to the, the, when the thief is on his way to the site of his blood ritual earlier in the film. You get this really terrific shot of him towering amidst the mountains and there's this stormy lightning filled sky behind him. And it's, it's like I said, it's for the VHS is, is a bit of a mess. But I mean, this thing is in desperate need of a, a restoration. And I actually looked at it on uh, VHS. And then it's also available on Amazon Prime for those Prime members. But the, the quality is not much better than what it, it's probably a little bit better. The sound is definitely better, but uh, visually it's about the same. So uh, just for those shots alone, I would love to see this kind of cleaned up a little bit. And, uh, you know, as far as the acting's concerned, uh, Julia Motto, she plays Kay. She's a pretty strong, you know, hero, heroine or, or, or uh, you know, final girl. And she carries herself with, you know, a lot of authority. And she, she never really comes across as helpless, even though she's, you know, in trouble. <laughs> um, she's likable. She really is. She's a likable final girl. And, you know, there, there's spots, you know, by the you know, three quarters of the way through it. Like there's some tension there. Like what's going to happen? What's going to happen to her? Um, and that's a lot than I, more than I can say for, for a lot of the films that I've watched, but the twist involving her character about halfway through is, is probably going to be predictable, but that doesn't really take away from the film. Uh, Henry ball plays Nahala and he is a formidable slasher villain. He's a, a striking figure, man. He's, he's got this amazing build. It's this, Kind of like what I call like the 60s box body, but he's like, you know, uh, like 6'3", 6'4", with this just broad shoulders, you know, barrel chested, uh, just like I said, like just the, the look of him is great. The film's musical score has its moments. It enhances the mood at, at its best, and it sounds generic and maybe sometimes cartoonish <laughs> at its worst. But again, it's nothing that you can really complain about. The kills are good. It's They're not you know, overly graphic or gory and, you know, they're just, you know, like I said, they're, they're, it's a, they're really good, solid screen deaths. The ending is a little sudden. I'm not sure they knew how to end it, but you know, it works too. And it's, to me, I think it's a pity that Buffa never had opportunity to direct another film after this. Uh, he clearly knew what he was doing. 
this this movie doesn't come off as the work of an amateur. I'm telling you, there's some really good shots in the movie. Uh, there's flaws, yeah, for sure. But every movie has flaws. But you know, nothing major. Um, and like I said, it's a, it's a good quality slasher that that cuts deeper than the normal explosive tripe from that era. I assure you that. And you know, you wouldn't want to you know dig up and try to conjure the spirit of Nahali anytime soon. I tell you that, Bubba. So the next thing I want to the next thing I want to talk about is is the title. You know, Ghost Dance. Like of all of the things they could have pulled from, of all the stories. Of all of the you know legends and you know things like that, why why did they pull the ghost dance? Like where did that come from? It seems to me like it was just something that they heard and it sounded cool and you know we could make a movie on that. It has nothing to do with the ghost dance or anything with ghosts really at all. And I just want to kind of share a couple of you know other uh, Native American stories or, or myths or you know creatures that we have in our in our, our our nations and our culture because you know the idea of a boogeyman has been around as long as storytelling itself but when it comes you know to discussing particular native stories uh, i think that carolyn dunn who's an author she summed it up perfectly when she said and i quote i've always taken issue with the idea that the word myth has come to signify falsehood i don't want to get into a discussion here on the nuances and subtleties of language but the idea that a culture can be judged simplistic and primitive based upon its myths has always concerned me. After all, what is a myth? Creation stories, talk stories, foundations of culture, foundations of language, the basis from which all social and cultural definitions come forth and define a people, a language, a system of belief, a way of knowing, a way of being. To define a culture by its myth-making, primarily it creation stories by calling these stories myths automatically in some circles suggest a falsehood therefore creation stories that are not literal creation stories are myths therefore an entire culture's worldview at, at its foundation ba- is based upon falsehoods so this is why i prefer to divide a myth before beginning any kind of you know podcast or essay or discussion or talk or speech on the topic, um, in my native Muscogee worldview, in, in any way of speaking, be it speech or writing, uh, when you say things, it becomes a living, breathing entity that once spoken can't be taken back. There, there's no word for sorry in our Muscogee language. So you have to be aware of everything that you say because words, when spoken, are given life and they take on a life of their own. And this is why you, you've got to be careful what you write and what you speak. We are, in a sense, cre- uh, recreating the creative process. You know, when, when words take shape and form, you know, uh, giving words character and form, so of our myths, our creation stories, uh, lived in the telling from generation to generation, those take shape and form uh, as they, they're told from teller to teller. From generation to generation, from you know, young and old, young from from old to young, they really take on a life of their own. Uh, the myths are truth of a people whose existence has been spoken and breathed into beings for thousands of years. So that's why I think it's important that you know when I talk about things like that, I try my best not to refer to them as myths or legends, but rather stories or accounts. Because who among us to say what's real and what's not? 
to some, the idea of, you know, be the world being created in six days by this, you know, all sky god uh, and mankind being fooled by a talking snake and an apple, that could be considered absurd in some circles. So I've compiled a short list of the most commonly referenced Native American stories or accounts about larger than life uh, or death <laughs> beings and creatures. Um, the first one is called a skinwalker and full disclosure before I get into this I was really torn on whether I wanted to do this or not because uh, you know like we said words are spoken it's it could put some bad juju on you you know and I something I don't want but I spoke with a couple of Navajo friends of mine and they said that it was was okay you know as long as you know you're not you know poking fun or or making anything lighthearted or you know trying to be, uh, you know, <laughs> disrespectful in any way, so, which is not at all what the podcast is about. So um, that's why uh, I'm going to do this really quick. But anyway, uh, they're called uh, Nodlushi. I hope I said that right. Um, I believe it translates to it, to it goes on all fours. Um, it's a witch or a shapeshifter who, according to Navajo stories that have been shared with me, have, among other powers, the ability to turn into and disguise themselves as an animal. Uh, the animals most commonly associated with the skinwalkers are those culturally identified as tricksters, uh, maybe coyotes and uh, or rabbits in, in my culture. But they also uh, include those reflective of death and darkness, such as wolves or owls. Uh, according to Navajo beliefs, to become a skinwalker requires the intentional murder of a close relative and as such, they are both feared and reviled within Native tradition. Representing the antithesis of the cultural ideas of the Navajo and their medicine men, that of healing and helpfulness, uh, skinwalkers choose instead to manipulate spiritual magic to do evil deeds and a perversion against nature. Uh, in addition to their powers of physical transformation, skinwalkers uh, can also possess the bodies of animals and people just by locking eyes with them. Uh, due to their reputed power, skinwalkers are prevalent uh, beings in Navajo legend. These stories typically take the form of climatic struggles between noble persons of the tribe and the witch. Although unusually for native traditional stories, they don't always end exclusively uh, with positive outcomes. And they often include some type of moralistic message for children to learn from. Uh, but many victory stories involving skinwalkers conclude with multiple inhabitants of a hogan or a traditional Navajo dwelling, uh, joining together in a communal strength of wills to scare away the monster and the darkness which it brings with it. So I wanted to thank my friend Smugsta for providing that, and uh, Turkey Boy, thank you so much for, for giving me those stories there. Uh, the next one is The Deer Woman. Uh, the Deer Woman saga is told uh, over and over in cultures of the southeastern Indians. Um, you know, even though all our origins may be different, uh, you know, Cherokee moving into Southeast from the Iroquois and uh, our languages are different. Seminole, Choctaw, Muscogee being uh, like Muscogee language and Cherokee being more like Iroquoian. Uh, the lore we have is very similar. Uh, we're all after we are, you know, culturally related and we share many ancestral domestic space. So with the passage of stories in an oral culture, uh, in the living aspect of these creation stories, you know, they're bound to travel and take on a life of their own and become interwoven into daily lives. And indeed, the story of the Deer Woman has. 
but the deer woman is uh, one of the little people uh, among the Cherokee. They are called uh, Yanwitsansdi, and I hope I pronounced that right. I am so sorry to my Cherokee friends. And among the Choctaw, Hutuk, Aswa, uh, literally little people, or little men, uh, in Muskogee, we call them uh, uh, Estelabotchki. Uh, that's the little people. And the function of the little people is similar to the function of fairies in Europe, I suppose. Um, or sometimes the boogeyman in America. There are stories that we were told when we were younger. Uh, I remember as a kid that the little people would come up from the earth and swallow us up if we weren't good. And uh, that was some stories that, that I had heard as growing up, you know, that the little people are invisible most of the time. But occasionally they let themselves be seen by younger children and, and medicine men. They are described as looking like ancestral Indians and speaking Muskogee. Uh, they are described usually wearing traditional clothing of goatskin leggings and moccasins. And uh, frequently they, they'll take in children who are lost in the woods or wander away from home. They kind of feed and care for the children. And occasionally they'll teach them medicinal ways. So... Uh, growing up, I, I've always heard lessons warning us kids about jumping into puddles after it rains, and that if uh, us kids did that, that the little men would uh, jump up and, and take us under <laughs> wherever, uh, where we'd never be seen again. So the little men, the little people, they, they kind of keep us in line. Uh, although their roles can be sinister, uh, the little people are spirits whose function in society is to hold otherworldly knowledge, spiritual and secular knowledge handed down from generation to generation. And that power, it has to be respected. It must be respected. It must be obtained and maintained in traditional healthy ways. Uh, and the little people to teach us to do just that. So use our power in a good way or else we'll be lost. And the deer woman is such an estelabotchki. Uh, deer woman, or Ijahokti, uh, as she's called in Muskogee, her specific magic and mythos uh, surrounds marriage and courtship rituals. And I write uh, of the Deer Woman from the Muskogee perspective, because this is what I know. Um, but other cultures have encounters with Deer Woman or Deer Man as well. Uh, Ella Cara Deloria, uh, who's an educator, an anthropologist, ethnographer, linguist, and uh, novelist. She recorded Native American oral history of several traditional Dakota and Lakota narratives, which mirrored uh, the Southeastern tribe's Deer Woman stories. Uh, the Karuk tribe, or Karuk tribe, um, according to the Karuk artist and storyteller Lynn Risling, um, they have stories of Deer Woman in which the spirit is associated with fertility and maturation rituals and prepares young women for marriage. The southeastern stories are similar in that young people must be instructed in uh, uh, choosing a societally approved mate uh, in order for cultural survivor survival. Um, in these stories, uh, a beautiful young woman meets a young man and entrances him into a sexual relationship. Uh, the woman is so beautiful that the young man is often swayed by uh, her beauty away from his family, away from his home, away from his culture and community. If the young man is so entranced as to not notice the young woman's feet, which in the case of dear woman are hooves, then he falls under her spell and stays with her forever. Wasting away into depression, despair, prostitution, and untimely death. So the Deer Woman teaches us that marriage and family life within the community are very important and that these relationships cannot be entered into lightly. Uh, her tales of morality narratives are, sorry, I can't talk today. 
Her tales of morality narratives are morality morality t- narratives too. Uh, she teaches us that the use of misuse of sexual power is a transgression that could end in madness and death, and that the only way to save oneself from the magic of Dear Woman is to look at her feet, to see her hooves, and recognize her for what she is. To know the story and act appropriately is to save oneself from a lifetime of pain and sorrow. To ignore the story is to continue with the death dance with Dear Woman. Uh, Dear Woman instructs us that uh, sexual attraction does not a proper marriage make. It is the societal and cultural responsibility of each tribal member to choose a mate wisely, therefore ensuring tribal survival into the next generation. Both the Karuk stories, Karuk stories, and the Muscogee stories illustrate this cultural responsibility. But there is a common story that teaches us of our origins and that we were born of ancestors who came from the stars and mated with the people born from the earth, from the mounds that still exist in the southeast today. We are descendants of earth and stars, and being born from earth and sky, we are on a relentless move westward to the land of the sunset. You know, we, we chase the sun who is female and whose power is renewing and creative. And as we move westward, westward, away from our traditional ancestral homes, removed by force and by will, we are taught that the stories move with us. The spirits do as well. They move with us and follow us uh, on our migrations west. And this is where Dear Woman and I met once upon a time. And according to Paula Gunn Allen, uh, in her collection of stories called Grandmothers of Light, uh, Beacon Press, 1991, The Dear Woman is, and I quote, a supernatural who appears as a human woman and as a doe by turns. She is said to bewitch women and men and eventually cause their descent into death and prostitution. We see the migration of the spirit of the woman along with the people who leave home and reassemble pieces of lives, of language, of culture, or ritual and ceremony into a whole new wide world. The creation story is told again through language, through the continuation of myth, even if it is in a new place. And my other favorite piece on Dear Woman is Enjoy Harjo, the internationally renowned Muscogee writer and performer. She has a poem called Dear Dancer from her book uh, In Mad Love and War. She describes the woman who is and becomes a deer. And it goes like this. But I imagined her like this, not a stained red dress with tape on her heels, but with Uh, The deer who entered our dream in white dawn breathed mist into pine trees, her fawn a blessing of meat, the ancestors who never left. She is a deer who leaves home and comes into a bar full of misfits, sending them home on a quest to sober up and to quote Nat King Cole, straighten up and fly right. That's an amazing prose from the 23rd Poet Laureate of the United States, isn't it? I love that poem, man. And Joy Harjo, check her out. Uh, the next one is Istigini, uh, a.k.a. Owlman. This is another Muscogee legend uh, uh, creature from our stories. Uh, many Among many tribes, the owl is said to be both feared and embraced. Traditionally, many tribes believed, and some individuals still hold these beliefs, that certain medicine people, both male and female, could be drawn to that part of spiritual power that could do harm to people. Uh, Some tribes call them witches, uh, or the equivalent of a witch in their particular language. 
These witches or medicine people that practiced bad medicine were believed to have the ability to shapeshift or transform themselves into an animal or bird. Uh, many of these witches, it is believed, would change into the form of an owl so that they could fly silently through the night to cast spells on people while they were asleep and vulnerable to spiritual forces. Or at the very least, you know, spy on people to learn their weaknesses. Because uh, the average tribal member doesn't really have the knowledge to distinguish a real owl from Estegini, uh, all owls are usually avoided in general for safety's sake. And it was believed that only holy people or, or the Hilas Haya uh, medicine men have the special knowledge to tell them apart. Uh, one time, this is a true story, uh, I, I was leaving to go to work out really early in the morning. And it was probably like 4 a.m. probably. And I was walking out to my car, and uh, I was parked at the apartment complex outside the dumpster, uh, you know, the big dumpster you throw your trash in. And there, literally perched um, on the dumpster, it, it appeared out of thin air, was this large owl. And it just it just was looking right at me. And I mean, it I, when I say it materialized out of nowhere, that I mean it just out of nowhere. It was I was looking, and all of a sudden it was there. And I immediately turned around and I started walking back up to the stairwell because I wanted no part of it. And I turned around again just to kind of get a look at it. And it was gone. It was within seconds. Uh, it just vanished. Um, and it, it really spooked me. And I decided to go back inside and, and uh, burn a little sage uh, just in case. Uh, uh, you know, whew, you can never be too careful. But uh, holy men or holy women among many tribes frequently sought out the spiritual help from real owls in their healing practices. Uh, the holy people believed that the owl had a very soft and gentle ways, similar to the softness of an owl's feather. And these uh, ways were taught to them uh, in the healing ways. Therefore, whenever owl feathers are worn by an individual, uh, it often meant that they were a medicine person with healing abilities. Among many tribes, two of the owls with tufts on their head, the, the great horned owl and the screech owl, they're often seen as uh, the, uh, the most uncanny and most dangerous of owls. Uh, in fact, some tribes believe that individual examples of these owls may not even be real birds at all, but they're actually transformed witches, uh, as I had talked about above, or talked about uh, earlier. As in... Uh, some other tribes, though, the unquiet spirits of the, of the dead, which is often assumed the form of a horned owl when on nefarious errands, such as uh, such witches add to their own lifespan by stealing and eating the hearts of their victims. Each stolen heart adds two to three years to the witch's life. Um, using black medicine, the witch can put all of the people in a house into a deep sleep and then work on the intended victim. The heart is extracted through the victim's mouth and then later cooked in a small iron kettle. Estegeni, in order to assume the form of an owl, must retire to the woods uh, or a secret spot and vomit up his or her inner organs. Uh, this, these they leave behind when they go out on their uh, nefarious, deadly errands. Uh, returning, they swallow the parts again and they resume their human form. The stink of the entrails sometimes gives away the base of operations. So uh, that I got from uh, Oklahoma Seminoles, uh, Medicine, Magic, and Religion by Willie Lena and uh, Life with the Little People by Robert Perry Johnson. And there's an awesome book by, called Creek Medicine Ways by uh, David Lewis Jr. So that's where all, all that information come, came from. 
So uh, wasted a little bit of time with that. What all does it have to do with the film itself? Nothing at all. But the point I was trying to make is that there is a wealth of stories they could have pulled from. So why did they choose Ghost Dance? Uh, because the Ghost Dance is nothing like mythological about it. Um, it's a ceremony, actually. And even though the name uh, of the film takes its takes its name from that ceremony and there's surprisingly a few references to Wavoka in the movie. It has nothing to do with the dance or religion itself. Um, aesthetically, it, Columbus, the name only the, the ghost dance is actually a spiritual movement that arose among Western American Indians. It is believed to have originated among the Paiutes in about 1869 with a series of visions of an elder named Wadzawab. The visions foretold the renewal of the earth and help for the Paiute peoples as promised by their ancestors. And this followed a period when many people had died as a result of contact with European diseases. A typhoid epidemic in 1867 may have also influenced the birth of this movement. Initially, uh, Wadzawab said that he saw some kind of great cataclysm removing all of Europeans leaving behind only Indians. But in later visions, he saw an event that removed all people from the continent, after which uh, those who faithfully practiced the spirituality of their ancestors would be miraculously returned. Later still, his vision no longer predicted the destruction of Europeans, but an immortal and peaceful life for those who practiced the spiritual teachings. A ceremony that featured a communal dance circle was central to the spiritual practice suggested by these visions. Uh, the dance will also prophesize positive change to come uh, to the lives of native people. And But when the prophecies didn't come true, the beliefs accompanying the dance rituals were abandoned and uh, Wadziwab kind of passed away, in, uh, not really in shame, but just quietly uh, in, in 1872. But on January 1st, 1889, there was a northern Paiute named Wavoka. And he also took the name Jack Wilson later. Um, Wavoka had a dream during the eclipse of the sun. And his prophecy was similar to that of Wadziwab. He said that he saw the European settlers leaving uh, or disappearing, the, uh, the buffalo returning, and the land restored to Indian peoples all across the continent. Uh, in this vision, ancestors would be brought back to life and all would live in peace. Uh, Wavoka had been raised by European-American family of David Wilson after the death of his father. Uh, his teachings emphasized maintaining a peaceful relationship with white Americans. Um, he had also had some exposure to Christianity, so it's not really surprising here that there are mentions of Jesus or a Messiah in his teachings. Uh, he said that by practicing the circle dance ceremony, his vision of a peaceful world would be made to come about. So hearing of this new prophet among the Paiutes, council members from many different tribes traveled to speak with him because they wanted to learn about his visions and especially about uh, what was becoming widely known as the ghost dance. Before long, the ritual was being performed across Native American communities, which were generally located on reservations administered by the federal government. Letters were sent by the leaders of this movement to other Indian peoples to explain the vision and the ceremony that would help bring about the transformation of the earth leaders of the movement. Uh, they also, uh, excuse me, leaders of the movement also visited 
you know, many uh, Indian nations to help teach them about the vision and the dance. According to Wavoka, uh, Wavoka, the, a new age would dawn in 1891. The dead people of his tribe would be restored to life. Uh, game, which had been hunted nearly to extinction, would also return, and the white people would just vanish and stop afflicting the indigenous peoples. Wavoka also said that a ritual dance which had been taught to him in his visions must be practiced by the native populations. This uh, ghost dance was similar to traditional round dances uh, and it was taught to his followers. You know, at the time, the native population was, was very demoralized. Uh, the, the nomadic way of life had been curtailed by the U.S. government. Uh, it forced a lot of tribes onto reservations, uh, forced them to live in really atrocious conditions. And Wavoka's preaching, you know, seemed to offer some type of hope to a people that, that just didn't have any. Dancing, obviously, is a, a very common among native spiritual practices. And the ghost dance was based on the round dance that is common to many uh, Indian people. It's used as a social dance. It's used for healing practices. Uh, but basically, the participants hold hands and they dance around in a circle with sort of a shuffling side-to-side -side step, uh, kind of swaying a little bit to the rhythm of the songs as they're singing. Uh, traditional round dance, there's a drum played in the center of the circle, but the ghost dance ceremony did not typically use a drum. Instead, there's often a pole or like a tree in the center of the circle, or sometimes there wasn't anything at all. The details of the dance vary somewhat among the people who performed it uh, during that time. Uh, it is said that the dance would last for about four days and that it united the entire tribe. During the dance, some uh, onlookers would take fans that were woven from the wings of eagles and they would fan those partaking the dance. The act is said to put the dancers in some type of trance uh, and while submerged, excuse me, uh, those in the trance would see their relatives who had passed on to the afterworld. The dancers would see them in a place of complete serenity and the lives they were living were the ones of the past where all were happy and uh, under no oppression with the supply of buffalo easily at hand. Uh, according to James Mooney, uh, the scholar of American Indian culture and language, uh, he made recordings of songs uh, of the ghost dance in several languages. Uh, the songs with a faster rhythm were sung to help the dancers wishing to achieve a trance and perhaps experience visions. Those experiencing a trance might leave the circle of dancers and dance on their own or sometimes just kind of lie exhausted on the ground. Uh, this sort of led to uh, something called the Ghost Dance Wars, and we're going to get into that here really quick. So hang, hang tight. Uh, as the Ghost Dance spread among uh, Western Native American reservations, the federal government moved really aggressively to stop it. Uh, the, the dancing and the religious teachings associated with it, you know, really became issues of public concern. And it began being widely reported in, in local newspapers. And as the 1890s began, the emergence of the ghost dance movement was viewed by white Americans as a threat and a, a real credible threat. Uh, they were scared, uh, so to speak. Uh, the American public was, at that time, kind of getting used to the idea that, that the natives uh, had been you know, pacified and, and moved out into reservations, forgotten, and you know, essentially, hopefully to them, converted just to living in the style of you know, regular white farmers and settlers. 
But once word reached them about what was going on with the ghost dance, uh, that fear really began to to grow. Uh, in 1890, the ghost dance had become really well known among Western tribes, and the dances uh, soon became like really well attended rituals. Among the Sioux, um, they were led by Sitting Bull, legendary Sitting Bull. The dance became extremely popular. Uh, the belief took hold that someone wearing a shirt that was worn during the ghost dance would become invulnerable to any injury, uh, including stopping bullets. Um, rumors of the ghost dance, like we said, began to instill fear among settlers, especially in South Dakota, uh, in the region of the Indian Reservation at Pine Ridge. Uh, word began to spread that the Lakota Sioux were finding a fairly dangerous message in Wavoka's vision. Uh, his talk of a new age without whites, uh, it was kind of seen as a call to arms uh, to eliminate white settlers in that region. So they began kind of gearing up um, to, to take care of the problem. And part of Wavoka's vision was that various tribes would unite so when ghost dancers began to be seen uh, as a dangerous movement that could lead to widespread attacks on white settlers across the entire West, like we said, they, they began to, you know, really start to, to get scared and, and uh, start arming themselves. And, you know, uh, the, the spreading of the fear was actually uh, picked up in, like we said, newspapers uh, in an era where publishers such as you know, Joseph Pulitzer and, and William Randolph Hearst were beginning to champion sensational news. Um, so in November 1890, there was a number of newspaper headlines across America that linked the ghost dance to alleged plots against white settlers. The U.S. Army and even the entire uh, U.S. itself. An example of how white society viewed the ghost dance appeared in a pretty lengthy story in the New York Times. And I'm not going to read the whole thing to you, but the headline, you can look it up, it's, it's actually on uh, Google, is how the, this is, this is the headline, how the Indians work themselves up in a fighting pitch. That is the, the, the article, and I'm not even kidding about that. Um, it explains how a reporter who was led by a, a friendly Indian uh, scout <laughs> trekked over to a Sioux camp, and it goes like this. I'm going to read this. Uh, this is, was written in the New York Times. Uh, the trip was extremely hazardous, owing to the frenzy of the hostels. The article describes the dance, which the reporter claimed to have observed from a hill overlooking the camp. Um, 182 bucks and squaws participated in the dance, which took place in a large circle around a tree. Uh, the reporter described the scene. Quote, the dancers held on to uh, one another's hands and moved slowly around the tree. They did not raise their feet as high as they do in the sun dance, but most of the time it looked as though their ragged moccasins did not leave the ground. And the only idea of dancing the spectators could gain from the motion of the fanatics was the weary bending of the knees. Round and round the dancers went with their eyes closed and their heads bent toward the ground. The chant was incessant and monotonous. I see my father. I see my mother. I see my brother. I see my sister. That was Half-Eye's translation of the chant as the squaw and warrior moved laboriously about the tree. The spectacle was as ghastly as it could be, and it showed the Sioux to be insanely religious. 
the white figures bopping between pained naked warriors and the shrill yelping noise of the squaws as they tottered in grim endeavor to outdo the bucks made the picture in the early morning which had not yet been painted or accurately described. Half Eyes says the dance with the spectators were then uh, witnessing had been going on all night. And that is in a major publication of New York Times. On the following day, on the other side of the country, the front page story on the Omaha Daily Bee, it read, quote, a devilish plot, uh, end quote. That's the headline. And it claimed that the Indians on Pine on the Pine Ridge Reservation planned to hold a ghost dance in a narrow valley. And the plotters, uh, that's what they called them. The newspaper called them plotters that uh, would then lure soldiers into the valley to stop the ghost dance, at which point they would be massacred. And yet there's more. Uh, you can read all about this. There's another New York Times article that's called, uh, quote, It Looks More Like War. That's the headline. And it claimed that Little Wound, one of the leaders at the Pine Ridge Reservation, uh, was, quote, the great camp of the ghost dancers, end quote, asserted that the Indians would defy orders to cease the dancing rituals. The article said that the Sioux were choosing their fighting ground and preparing for a major conflict with the U.S. Army. So just as, as people are reading those, uh, the white citizens became aware of the ghost dance ceremony being practiced by tribes around them. And of course, they're getting the sensationalized version that was meant to scare them, you know, and they, they, they were sensed danger and they were alarmed at this point. Um, the U.S. Indian policy, more specifically the Dawes Act, was believed to have been under attack by those dances. And it created a fear among the white people of an uprising of the Indians. It is even said that officials, especially those who ran the reservations, saw that a war was being ignited by the Lakotas. I mean, even the act of wearing the decorated shirts in practice of the dance fueled the idea that the Lakotas were forming and instigating the makings of a battle. So just even wearing clothing um, signified that they were ready to, to, to fight. And, and in fear, uh, officials of the reservation called on the United States government, the president at the time, uh, Benjamin Harrison responded by sending the U.S. Army down to the reservations to stop the threat. So the Indians were aware that that they were being that this whites were scared, and they actually called on the president at the time to say, "Hey, you need to tell these people to chill out a little bit. Like they're starting to scare us, you know." Um, but uh, this resulted, you know, in countless Indian leaders. You know, once the the U.S. Army got there. It resulted in countless Indian leaders being arrested and tactlessly killed. Uh, one of those was Sitting Bull. Uh, most Americans in the late 1800s were familiar with Sitting Bull. Um, he was a medicine man of the Hunk Papa Sioux, um, who was closely associated with the Plains Wars of the 1870s. Uh, Sitting Bull, while he did not per you know, directly participate in the massacre of Custer uh, in 1867, he was in the vicinity, and his followers attacked Custer and his men. Uh, following the demise, though, of Custer, Sitting Bull led his people into safety, uh, fearing for his life. He fled into Canada. Um, after being offered amnesty, uh, he eventually returned to the United States back in 1881. Uh, in the mid-1880s, though, he toured with Buffalo Bill's Wild West show alongside performers like uh, Annie Oakley. Uh, then by 1890, Sitting Bull was back in South Dakota. He had become very sympathetic to the movement, the ghost dance movement, and he actually encouraged young Native Americans to embrace the spirituality championed by Wavoka, and he was apparently urging them to take part in the ghost dance rituals. 
uh, just that endorsement of the movement by Sitting Bull was definitely noticed. It, it did not go unnoticed. And the fear of the ghost dance spread. Um, what appeared to be his involvement only heightened tensions. The federal authorities decided it was time to arrest Sitting Bull, as it was suspected that he was about to lead a major uprising among the Sioux. Then, on December 15, 1890, a detachment of U.S. Army troops, along with natives who worked as police officers on a reservation, they rode out to where Sitting Bull, his family, and some followers were camped. The soldiers stayed at a distance while the police sought to arrest Sitting Bull. And according to very new, uh, various news accounts at the time, um, Sitting Bull was cooperative, and he agreed to leave the reservation with the police. Um, you know, he, he didn't put up a fight. He, he agreed. He was cooperative, and he, he walked out. But uh, as he was leaving, some of the young natives began to attack the police, and a shootout occurred. And in the gun battle, Sitting Bull was shot and killed. And uh, the death of Sitting Bull was, was, was major news in the East. Uh, the New York Times published a story about the circumstances of his death on its front page. With the headline, uh, it described him as an old medicine man and a wily old plotter. So even in death, man, there was never any respect for, for Sitting Bull. Uh, just, you know, just it's so disrespectful. But moving on... Uh, a little bit for, uh, on with the story here. On December 23rd, 1890, or 1890 excuse me, the Minikanjus Lakota, and I hope I pronounced that right. I, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm doing my best here. So if, if I'm wrong, please let me know um, the correct pronunciation of these. But anyway, the Minikanjus Lakota fled and escaped their reservation village after being struck with fear. Uh, from the words of John Dunn, who was a local squatter, um, he's re recorded an account in the, in the newspaper, uh, the military had planned to take the Lakota men and deport them to an island in the Atlantic Ocean. Uh, that was their plan, was to just round them all up and dump them on an island. Uh, with this news, the, Minicon the Minicanjus uh, Lakotas ran. But after five days, the tribe was found by the 7th Cavalry, and they were s who were sent to intervene. The Lakotas were sent to live instead in confinement on Wounded Knee Creek. By the next morning, December 29th, Colonel James W. Forsyth uh, ordered that the tribes surrender all firearms. Uh, in back and forth arguments, some Lakotas engaged in songs of the ghost dance. Uh, once again, uh, the ghost dance began, the, just the singing of the songs was interpreted as a threat. And some Indians began throwing handfuls of dirt in the air. And this was seen uh, from, the, from the U.S. as a signal of an attack. Uh, this ignited the soldiers who were supervising the reservations. Um, it all kind of started over a quarrel over a rifle. Uh, Black Coyote, he refused to surrender his gun to a soldier who demanded it. Uh, there was a tug of war, uh, struggled to get the gun away, and uh, supposedly it accidentally fired. Uh, because of the sudden shot, the troops opened fire because they thought they were uh, under the assumption that they were indeed under attack and needed to regain order. So the Lakotas at this point had no weapons because they were there. They were unarmed. Um, all they could do is really just flee the situation. Uh, the military just unloaded their weapons, just firing them and chased all of them down. And, it, you know, that attempted to escape, killing, you know, as many as they could along the way. Gunfire continued for hours as the, the military pursued the Lakotas. This occurrence became known as the Wounded Knee Massacre. Uh, anywhere between 150 to 300 Lakotas died that day. 
many of them unarmed, most of them unarmed. Um, many of them were women and children. Uh, in attempt to gather all the bodies, uh, some were even found like from, from three miles away uh, from the reservation. They were shot and they were blood trailed like, like you know, you do a deer. It's just, just savage and just brutal. Uh, there was 146 Lakotas were buried in a mass grave while the others were gathered and accounted for later. And some of the bodies, they just left on the plains to just rot. It's just, it's just sad. It's, it's angry. It's, you know, I just, I, I, uh, sorry. Um, it was celebrated among the white people as a success. Uh, people believe that the savage ways of the Indians may finally be over. Uh, the Medal of Honor was presented to 20 individuals for their acts during the massacre of Wounded Knee as their actions was seen as being extremely heroic. The Wounded Knee Massacre was probably the final blow to the Indians as this ended the 400-year conflict between the whites and the natives. You know, in, in only 10 years, um, the Indian population reached a low of just 250,000 people. Uh, so if you, if you want to talk about genocide, you can talk about that. Uh, this massacre also resulted in the goat stance ceremonies kind of dying out among the Lakotas. Um, but, you know, elsewhere in the plains, I mean, I'm not saying it died out completely because the act did obviously continue. Uh, in some areas as far away as Canada, the ghost dance was practiced well into the 1960s. Uh, the ceremonial ghost dance holds a rich cultural importance to all those uh, lo you know, longing to return of their happy, prosperous, unbothered lives before the introduction of white settlers. It shows that the practice has been completely connected with one's spirituality. And in it, that uh, reunites members to those who have passed. It also highlights, you know, just how important culture is to, to, to Indians. Uh, just by the act of dancing, singing songs, and, and clothing that you put on your body. I mean, the true purpose of the ghost dance was really just to inspire hope, you know. Um, instill hope in a people that had no hope. And, it, you know, it continues to do so uh, even today, uh, you know. Things like these ghost dance should never die out as time progresses. So I just wanted to share all of that with you guys. I know it was a lot um, because, you know, some people don't know the real history. Uh, you know, I mean, they don't know. These are the things that you're not hearing about, uh, reading about in textbooks. Uh, you're getting a... a <laughs> You're getting a, a, a skewed view of it or a skewed story of it and, you know, something that we don't appreciate. Um, you know, there's a lot of pain there. I mean, obviously, I, I got a little choked up, you know, going over some of the facts of this thing. And uh, but when you see yourself, you know, in your culture being paraded around in, in mascots or, you know, Halloween costumes or parried in, you know, Adam Sandler films or on Saved by the Bell on TV and it just all of it just dehumanizes us, you know. I mean, it has the the potential for impressionable young minds to see us nothing as nothing but characters. And I talked about that, you know, growing up. I, I you know, I, I I didn't think I was. I thought I was a real Indian, but I didn't know what that meant. I just was just playing what I saw on TV or what I was reading about in comics and stuff like that. I didn't know what it what it meant, you know. And as documented in decades of comprehensive studies. Uh, derogatory Native American images have really serious psychological, social, and cultural consequences, especially for the youths, you know? I mean, honestly, that's that's what it's about. 
uh, is, is damaging the youth. Uh, considering negative appropriation or stereotyping, uh, you know, it's just there are alarmingly high rates of hate crimes against Native peoples. And this is according to a uh, Department of Justice analysis in 2018 that Native Americans are, are more likely than other people of people of other races to experience violence at the hand of someone uh, of a different race. So, you know, that's just, that's the reality of, of, of what it all is. So with that being said, uh, just because you can call your movie, the ghost dance, it doesn't mean you should, you know, I mean, this film would be just fine if it didn't have that title, but it does. It's called the ghost dance. The film, it opens up with an overhead shot of an excavation on an undisclosed, undisclosed southwestern desert town. Uh, I found on uh, IMDb, a uh, majority of this film was shot in around Tucson, Arizona. Uh, but the team isn't working for long until they hit pay dirt. Uh, no pun intended. <laughs> but uh, the crew quickly gather uh, and begin carefully brushing dirt away from a, this unusually large wooden crate. Uh, kind of reminds me of that scene, you know, in Raiders of the Lost Ark when they hit the tomb of the Well of Souls and they kind of start re removing dirt and debris away from the edges until you kind of get like this, you know, coffin looking shape. Uh, but there's uh, some elders uh, looking on and they're, they're shaking their head disapprovingly. Uh, and I, I've, I've been on the receiving end of that same look from a lot of elders in my family, <laughs> but the, the team lead, uh, her name is Dr. Kay Foster. She, she gets an unassured look from a tribal member on just how to proceed next. Um, it's almost as if she didn't expect to find what they just found. Like she's kind of surprised and she's a little on edge too. uh, nervously looking around. She kind of gives him the head nod you know, to load it up. And as the team removes the coffin, uh, we see some kind of basket or pottery or relic or something kind of left behind. You know, I'm not really sure what it is because the camera doesn't stay on the object long enough, uh, to, for me to really see what it was. It's more of like a little fleeting shot. And it's perhaps the point, I don't know, but the next shot is actually pretty well done as we're treated to like this casket point of view shot. It's kind of being loaded up on the uh, this beat up ending truck and the tailgate is slammed shut and, and, and members of the squad, you know, begin covering the area with this green tarp for later robbing. I mean, excuse me, not robbing, uh, excavating. That's what it, excavating. Um, the elders, uh, they're just sad. I mean, they're looking on and they're just kind of disappointingly shaking their hung heads as, as the scene takes place. And, you know, and honestly, I can't imagine something like that, what that would feel like, you know, watching your history and your culture, just be picked apart by these bloody mouthed vultures in the name of science or study or, or, you know, history or, or whatever. I mean, just let it be. But as the convoy barrels down towards the destination, we're treated to some really stunning shots of the Arizona desert landscape. I mean, really it's gorgeous the way that they have it shot. The colors are spectacular because it's real. I mean, there is no CGI that could recreate that in 1982. Trust me. I mean, we're definitely in the painted desert, Bubba. I promise you, it's you can see it. Uh, and then some stuff happens, and I have to say that because the VHS transfer I watched it is really too dark to see exactly what's going on. Like I said earlier, I'd love to really see a cleaned-up version of this. Uh, the film was probably a victim of the massive video push of the 80s, The you know where many low-budget or no-budget films of the era were just kind of, you know, 
shout out, uh, regardless of the, of the sound or video quality, directly to the public, just uh, in order to fill as many empty shells on the booming video store market as quickly as possible. So kind of what happens is you get this really amazing eye candy box art illustrated with these amazing elaborate scenes that most don't even occur in the movie. Uh, it's the definitely a tease. Um, but the transfers at the time were, were done just as hastily and cheaply as possible, you know, just to make a quick bu- uh, buck at the expense of the consumer. And like I said, it's really a shame that this movie was a casualty to this because it's it's a pretty good flick. Um, but I'll do my best to try to explain kind of what's going on as best I can, giving the shadows, the picture grain, the sound effects, the music. We get like this over-the-shoulder shot of a figure slowly approaching the archaeological site uh, from earlier. And in the background, we see the dim lights of this trailer house. And I'm assuming this is where the groundskeeper or the security guard or somebody that's watching over this is stationed. The, the dark human form kind of carefully slides down into the hole as the sound of a coyote howling uh, rustles the German shepherd uh, sleeping out by the guard shack. Um, the figure cautiously steps over this kind of roped off, you know, dig grid. And as he's doing so, a snake slithers across a rock. Uh, the figure removes the green tarp that was covering the hole and uh, either picks up this old clay figure or he had it with him already. Like, yeah, I can't really tell, but he has this thing. He's kind of running his hands over the dirt and he he begins to fill a satchel that he has slung over his shoulder with things. Again, I'm not sure what they are. They're just things. Um, He continues to move dirt around. Uh, Then he finds like this basket or pot and it may have been that thing that was left behind. Again, I'm not sure. But whatever, he picks it up and he's kind of examining, you know, whatever it is. And at this moment, the rocks kind of shift behind him and a a little mini avalanche slide happens. And that sound, the the German Shepherd starts barking. And right on cue, that porch light of that trailer flicks on and the figure of the night kind of quickly scurries out of the hole. Uh, The security guard's, you know, spidey senses are tingling. And he, he makes his way to that dig site. He's kind of got a shotgun and a, on one hand and a flashlight in the other. And he, he kind of looks over the hole and he's down into it. And he sees this tar, the tarp and it's kind of in a heap. And, of course, he's got to go in for a closer examination. And uh, as one of the rules of the slasher movie, it's, it's not going to end well for him. But the flashlight kind of sways back and forth across the dirt. And he sees the basket or, or the pot. Like, what, what is it? I don't know what it is, but he sees it. He slowly picks it up. He uncovers it. And we get the first kind of jump scare of the movie as, as a snake springs out and latches onto his throat, rendering him lifeless as he kind of falls backwards unconscious. Uh, the silhouette uh, climbs back down carefully, stepping over the body of the, the security guard, but not before giving him a real swift kick in the side for reassurance. Uh, then he kind of continues his own excavation. Uh, he finds uh, what I think is this neatly tied package of burlap or leather, and it's kind of like wrapped up like with twine, kind of like a, like a Christmas gift, I guess. Then he does some stuff, and he smiles, I think, <laughs> and he makes like a thief in the night. And as he's leaving, we get a shot of a full moon, um, and it's kind of being enveloped with these dark clouds, you know, kind of covering the moon, um, signifying that there's evil stirring up, you know. Back at the res, the assumed figure gets home with a sack of goodies, and 
just as his old lady is getting ready for bed and, and you know, being the, the native woman that she is, she kind of starts busting his chops a little bit, inquiring, you know, where he's been or what he's been up to and whose auntie has he been snagging, et cetera, et cetera. We kind of learn through dialogue, though, that this man's name is Aranjo. And Aranjo, uh, where have you been? Aranjo, what are you doing? Uh, he sternly says, it's not the time for this nonsense. But, of course, that's that's not the right answer for, for this Hokti. Uh, she really kind of continues to, to press him. And then she kind of starts turning on him and telling him how she's spoken to so-and-so's wife and found out that there's work in the city you know, kind of indicating that it's time for old Aranjo to stop being lazy and start earning his keep around there. And all the time he's kind of unpacking this little bag and he's not really paying much attention to her, her grumblings. But, oh, she's not done yet. Uh, she keeps on telling him she's tired of, of living like a beggar's wife and while he's out searching for his precious medicine. And, uh, you know, then he, that's enough. He, he kind of, you know, stands up and he, he says something to the effect of like, oh, you'll see, I'll do it, I'll do it. I'll show all these people how powerful I, I will become. Uh, so she, she belittles him even further, you know, kind of comparing him to like a stereotypical witch. And, oh, well, I mean, that's, it's just really enough to send Aranjo over the edge. And he, he snaps, he like flips the table and he shows her the little package that he found at the dig site claiming this time he found the real deal. And uh, he says that it's the source of Nahala's power and he swears it'll pass over to him. Uh, what the object is, however, is still kind of uncertain. But old Hokti, though, isn't, isn't buying his ikshi. Uh, she, it's enough for old Aranjo. He kind of storms off, uh, grabs his jacket off the chair, saying, Just wait, just wait, you'll see. Where have you been? Aranjo? What's the matter with you? I said, where have you been? Not your child, woman. I spoke with Vincent's wife today. She said he got work in the city. She said, maybe if... I'm not interested. We live like beggars. While you wait for some fool to seek out Ranjo and his medicine. Enough! All of you. You will learn to hold your tongue soon enough. I will have the power, and everything will be as before. And that's all we need, isn't it? I can put your chants and your spells over the fire, mix them with your power, and serve them at the table. Can you understand nothing? Stupid old woman! So, yeah, there you have it. Uh, there's that, that symbolic thunderstorm, you know, brewing across the tundra. Uh, Aranjo enters the mouth of this cave, and he has, like, this little bindle uh, slung on his back, kind of like ending Santa Claus. Uh, and then some stuff happens. Again, I got to say that because the screen kind of gets real dark again. Uh, this is the best interpretation y'all get. Uh, Aranjo uh, unfolds this little tied package that he swiped at the grave site or the archaeological dig site, uh, revealing something. Again, I can't really tell. But whatever it is, it's big league because uh, Aranjo quickly removes a sash that he has tied around his waist and he fastens it to his head, you know, like Tonto style. It's 
you know, when, when natives do that, it's the equivalent of rolling up your sleeves, you know, let's do this, Bubba, Skoden. Uh, you know, after getting the bandana just right, though, we get the first view of the contents. It's just too bad it's too dark to see. Uh, it's like this dirty old clarinet reed, maybe, or it's possibly some dusty ass beef jerky, or maybe a, a rock, or it's something. I don't, a river stone, it's, it's flat, it's like a surfboard shape, and... Anyway, he arranges these items on something, and he does some things. It's like he's dusting off his hands over the relics, uh, maybe sprinkling tobacco, it's whatever. He goes on for like 30 seconds. He does some stuff. Uh, the uh, the objects are, I guess, you know, covered in dry rub or, or whatever it is. And the next thing he does, though, is he takes a knife out of his shoulder bag, and he, he pretty convincingly slices himself across the real meaty part of his hand uh, above his thumb there, uh, squirting blood all over the scene in front of him. And then he kind of cups his hands and with sand or dirt, maybe. Again, I don't really know. Uh, and he quietly begins to chant to himself. And you have this ominous mu music selection. It's really phenomenal, though. The, the music here is, is pretty good. And, and then there's this, you know, quiet, uh, fizzling, popping noise as the screen turns like blood red. Uh, letting the audience know that whatever Nahala Juju he's trying to conjure is working. Uh, the frame rate kind of slows a little bit, gives like a stop motion action as Aranjo, you know, falls backwards over in agony. And then the color changes from red to white hot to blue as he kind of doubles over in anguish. And Aranjo's face fills with fright. It's almost like he realizes that what he's done, you know, and I think he recognizes that, you know, maybe I went a little too far this time. Like I wasn't expecting that to work, but it did. But whatever it is, it scares him too. He quickly, you know, scrambles out of the cave on his hands and knees, you know, noticeably spooked by the vision, which again, I wish we would have got some backstory as to why he wanted to do this other than the fact that he was, you know, just trying to prove that uh, he was wanting to be powerful, but we don't really get that. It's just, he just wanted it. And, you know, there's no story of him, you know, uh, having some kind of conflict or anything. It's just, it is what it is. There's no, no plot, I guess, to get in the way of this story. But the next scene finds Aranjo. He's now in full Nahala mode. Uh, he returns home to find his old lady snoozing, um, you know, complaining and, and, and taking the piss out of you. It takes a lot out of you. But he, he silently kind of walks across the room and he kind of arouses her from her slumber. And it's kind of funny because without a beat, she's like wide awake and she is literally back to busting his balls. You know, like, what are you doing? It's so late. Blah, blah, blah. Uh, it determined to remind her uh, of she mocking him earlier. He pulls back her head and he just runs a blade like right across her throat and silencing her cantankerousness once and for all. doing it's late Ranho Ranho The next morning uh a young girl goes uh, to the house and she's kind of searching for Lena. Uh, Lena, we assume, is Aranjo's old lady. Uh, this, of course, awakens uh, an already tired and grumpy Nahala. Uh, the young girl slowly opens the door to the house, uh, only to find this huge black dog leaps out and attacks her. Uh, seemingly, Nahala has shapeshifted into this beast. 
the following scene is honestly kind of hard for me to watch uh, as this dog basically mauls this young girl. It's, again, a little too realistic for me. Uh, I think just kind of given the graininess of the film and uh, just the look of it, it, it comes across as like an actual dog attack that's being documented um, as she's uh, screaming for help, just literally uh, being drug around by her, her the dirt by her arms and legs and even her hands. Uh, it's brutal uh, the way the scene is shot. Uh, it, like I said, it's so realistic looking. Uh, the dog gets her by the fingers at one point. I mean, you get these really subconscious quick flashes of like bleeding wounds the entire time until she kind of falls unconscious. Uh, even when she's limp, the dog doesn't even stop. Like he's either pulling her by her hair, uh, or, you know, and she kind of drags her around into the, the, the shade of this dry, this giant rock. It's, I'm telling you now, it's, it's, it's really tough to watch this. It's, it's very, very realistic. <laughs> But the next scene is at a college where Kay, uh, Dr. Kay, is a foster is, is a professor. And Kay, remember, is, that, is the blonde lady from the very opening scene. And, and she walks into work uh, with all the information that this Professor Weber is looking for her. Uh, she's also notified that the TV news wants an interview about the discovery of the vault. And apparently it's a huge deal because not only does Weber and the media want to talk to her, the tribal elders uh, want to talk to her, and also the gorgeous photographer from Natty Geo, uh, Rick Haley. You know, the, the one with the tight pants and the little cigars. Uh, that's what they say in the movie. That's a line from the movie. Uh, but, and of course, a, a man named Tom Eagle uh, has questions for her as well. Uh, the news of this discovery is, is whatever they found in the tomb is hot. And uh, the office is, is decorated with uh, some Kachina dolls. And uh, it's kind of is kind of neat, I think, because they're just kind of just out of focus in the foreground of each shot. It's kind of interesting uh, how Buffa blocked out the scene with these figures in the in the foreground because, you know, they're not really emphasized. You don't really get a clear shot of them. You just kind of get their outline or just kind of a fuzzy you know, just off soft focus, uh, uh, look at them, a glimpse at them. They're not acknowledged. They're just kind of there. They look really ghostly uh, as the scene takes place. It's really a, a nice visual. I thought, um, why they're there. I don't really know. Uh, they're, they're Hopi, uh, you know, Kachina dolls are from the Hopi, uh, nation, which is, I guess, kind of correct for the Tucson location. And Flagstaff is, is about four hours or so from Tucson. And, uh, Humphreys Peak is about 60 miles from that. So, I mean, it's geographically, right? But again, I don't know if they're trying to tie the Kachina dolls in with the ghost dance. I'm not really sure. Uh, but anyway, Kay walks into her lecture class ready to school these these uh, rich white kids on the ghost dance. Good morning. Well, we're only missing the usual. We may as well get started. Now, I believe we left off with the Emergence of the Ghost Dance Cult. As the 1880s drew to a close, almost all of the Western tribes shared a crushing sense of hopelessness. And once again, the white man's government wanted to reduce their reservations even further. So, they were ripe for a messiah. And that messiah was Waboka. He started preaching a strange mixture of Christianity and the old Indian beliefs called the ghost dance religion. 
Among other claims, Wovoka swore that he had actually visited God in heaven. Whoever wrote this, which, you know, is uh, with Peter Buffa, did their research. You know what I mean? I mean, she name drops uh, Wovoka. Uh, you know, to my astonishment, she gives a pretty accurate description of what it is or what it was. Uh, you know, why it, and how it came about and sometimes even the sad result of it. She even seems kind of pissed at the white man as she weaves her narrative. Uh, I mean, like I said, she, she talks about the old native ways and, you know, uh, the Christianity mixtape. Uh, she even goes into the ghost shirt, which was, you know, used to stop the white man's bullets. Uh, you know, talk about native utopia and, and how it honored generations before. And like I said, this is all pretty historically correct, despite the fact that she calls it a cult. Uh, you know, I think of a cult more as uh, some kind of uh, misplaced belief, you know, regarded as manipulative or, or sinister. And, you know, the ghost dance obviously was what we talked about earlier was none of those things. But uh, back at the office, case assistant Paul has been notified that the vault has been looted. And uh, I know really irony at its best. <laughs> But the excavation team is diligently working to seal off the area, while beknownst to them, all under the careful eye of Nahala. The uh, upward towering shot of his silhouette lit by the sunset, and he's kind of taken in the scene below, is again, it's really arty uh, for such a low-budget film. Not one that you expect to see, um, but suddenly the pickup truck, which is conveniently located just feet from the gravesite, uh, begins to roll backwards uh, mysteriously, and the ominous music swells. Uh, there's an unfortunate man in the hole, and he's trying to scramble out, and of course he can't. He's kind of forced backwards in by the unseen force of Darth Nahala. Uh, you know, even at the man at the igloo cooler, which I haven't seen one of those in a long time, doesn't react fast enough, and the truck kind of falls into the hole, pinning the poor guy against the rocky soil. I thought he was dead, but he's not. He he comes back, but anyway. Uh, but after hearing the horrific news, uh, Kay and the guy named Tom Eagle, who is Victor Mojica. Uh, he, they head out to the site, uh, and they ain't out of that Jeep 10 seconds before the elders start laying into the irresponsibilities. Uh, Kay reminds them, though, that, hey, you know, that the team, you gave us permission to dig, to which uh, the elder Basawaya, Basawa uh, informs her that, you know, you, you may have had consent, but you didn't have the whole tribe's consent, just the council's. Uh, and he warns her that uh, it is in fact the rest, if it is the resting place of Nahala, and if he was found buried face down, then you have unleashed hell upon themselves. And uh, Tom Eagle quickly chimes in. He's like, you know, we don't believe in such poppycock. But uh, he's quickly reminded how, you know, hey, you, it doesn't mean anything. You left the res, remember? You, you forgot everything that the old men taught you. And that's a sick burn, isn't it? This thing's getting out of hand, Kay. All right, I'll handle it. Mr. Basawaya, you know Tom Eagle? This is no time for pleasantries. We told you from the start that this would bring nothing but trouble. Yes, but you did give us your permission. Some of us did, Doctor. Not all of us. Can you not understand what you have brought upon yourselves and on us if this is the resting place? This is the resting... Of Nahala, Doctor. This is the resting place of Nahala. The body that you found lying in the box was face down. Isn't that true? Hey, man, when an elder tells you to do something, you better do it. Uh, but, uh, you know, it's 
like I said, did, did Tom and Kay kind of Tom Eagle, they kind of begin debating on whether or not that they're doing the right thing. And uh, Tom, Tom Eagle tells Kay, you know, you don't know squat about Indians. It's different reading about it in a book. You know, I've lived it. Uh, I've tried my whole life to escape these stories, Kay. And it doesn't really, uh, you know, it doesn't really go into like why though. It doesn't really know why he left the res or, or, or what he was found. He found so offensive about the stories. It doesn't really go there. But anyway, uh, it's a story I'd like to hear. Uh, it kind of would help uh, to put the, uh, the character in context. But anyway, uh, Ken, uh, Kay kind of lends a sympathetic ear to Tom Eagle's belly aching. And then we get a series of shots of a, a, a young Tom Eagle, like a flashback. And there's one of him kind of foaming at the mouth, I think. Uh, it might be him. I don't know if it's him or not. And there's another one of him watching like this medicine man perform surgery. Again, I'm not sure if it's uh, the, the man that's going to kind of be the hero of the, of the story, uh, Ocasio. I can't tell because it's so fast, but uh, it has nothing to do with anything. I have no clue. But it's clear uh, as those nighttime shots down in the hole, <laughs> the, the, what, why they, they included these flashbacks to Tom Eagle. But next up, you get old Rick Haley, that groovy photographer from Nat Geo. And he's kind of talked himself into the, the pants of Kay's secretary, Carol, by promising her probably a magazine spread or something in next month's fashion magazine. Uh, but the camera kind of pans over them, fogging up the windows of this old stagecoach, uh, kind of Kate and Leo from Titanic style. And Carol begins kind of having second thoughts, and she kind of vacates the shagging wagon because uh, she thinks that she hears Kay somewhere off in the distance hollering for her. And for some reason, uh, Carol decides right then and there that she's got to go on the prowl looking for Dr. Foster uh, and kind of while slimy old Rick Haley kind of trails after her and he's kind of walking behind her and he's fastening various articles of clothing back into place. And then we're treated to this really atmospheric scene at the museum at night as these two lovebirds kind of quietly saunter among the taxidermy and mannequins and, and all the displays. And like I said, it's, it's a really surreal, eerie shot of the museum. It's really, really well done. Um, and then as Carol approaches kind of what you think is going to be Nahala, that is about to jump to life. Uh, the actual Nahala comes up from behind, making uh, making a pincushion out of her. Again, it's it's a really decent scare scene because of the red herring. I mean, you think that it's going to be Nahala in front of her, and he kind of pops up in the back. It's pretty awesome, to be honest. And now it's Rick's turn uh, on the hunt for Carol. He he uh, uh, gets a knife and slashes, or on the hunt after Carol. I can't even talk today. After uh. I've, Woo, let's try again. <laughs> uh, it's Rick's turn. On the hunt, uh, he gets a knife slash right across the kisser, and it causes Rick to kind of fall backwards into this glass case. And, of course, the final shot is this giant shard of glass kind of, you know, uh, dangling like a pendulum over him, and then it falls, uh, uh, hitting him right in the old bread basket, and blood kind of gushes out of his mouth, kind of real vibrant and gooey. Uh, and then kind of what's funny, I thought was kind of just for good measure, Nahala kind of walks over and, and pushes the glass just further into his abdomen uh, just to make sure that, that it really hurt. And, and then for some strange reason, this action jolts Tom Eagle awake, a, a miles away from his, from his home. Uh, again, has nothing to do with anything that I can tell. So, uh, yeah, the next morning we see a, a little native child and sh uh, she's kind of walking across the landscape there and she's carrying this uh looks like a woven laundry basket i think and uh 
she calls inside for Mr. Cassio, um, and we hear ever so faintly this this woman or this voice uh, whispering, like, come here, kitty, come here, kitty. Uh, it's, it's really kind of creepy. And the kid sits the basket down and, uh, you know, at the foot of the door, and she's getting ready to open up the door, and it's snatched open. And then what you really think is going to be that dog or something inside it's just a Locasio. He's an elder, and he just kind of emerges from outside or from inside, and uh, he he kind of walks out on the front porch. And uh, this scene is played perfectly because, given that, like we said, that dog attack, you think something harsh is going to happen to that little girl, but it doesn't. Uh, the old man kind of takes a seat outside and lights up a smoke, and and she's kind of telling the old man through the open window that the elders are talking about the return of Nahala. I suppose you've already heard. About the digging place, I mean. There's much talk in the village. Always much talk there. Little else. From some of the elders, there's even talk of Nahala. The people are afraid. Some want to come to you, but others warn them to stay away. Some of them tell their children to stay away from me. He says, it's all talk. Uh, never mind it. It's, he, uh, even though he's kind of looking, you know, like he's suspect of, of the stories, you know, like there might be something up. But back at the museum, the police are there and they're dusting for prints. And kind of what's funny is poor old Rick Haley is still laid out uh, with glass all over him. I don't know why they haven't come to get the body yet, but there he is. He's still laid out. They're kind of working around him. So it's kind of funny, uh, unintentionally funny. But uh, Paul Michaels, who's also a professor there, He's kind of busy, busying himself with his studies. Uh, Kay walks in uh, to, to question him if, if she thinks, if that he thinks the body that they found or dug up was indeed the suspected Nahala. And he assures her, you know, all tribes and ancestral figures have dark legends, and this is just one of them, Kay. Like, don't don't worry about it. And Kay is not convinced, and at this point, neither am I. Uh, then we, we see, like, a tracking shot of a body, and it's covered up with a sheet laying on a table, uh, you know, cue the ominous music, and then uh, you think something's going to happen. But then we're back at Kay's place, and 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 her and Tom Eagle, uh, I think, are, are kissing or playing a little tongue hockey in the dark. Again, it's it's really hard to tell because the scene is almost pitch black. You can just kind of make out a few light shapes, so you can't make out what's going on. But judging by the soundtrack, I figured they're either kissing really hard or they're stirring a pot of goulash. One of the two sounds about the same to me. And then the light flicks on and we see Kay and she's stretched out on one of the, the comically largest couches I've ever seen. This thing is massive. It looks like a like a, a life raft or something. It's so big. Uh, I can't even believe they made furniture like that back in the, the 70s and 80s. But anyway, uh, outside, again, stuff happens because it's too dark. Uh, I think it's a figure approaching the window. It's so fast and so dark. I can't even process what's going on. But whatever it is, it's there. Um, it, it's bad. It, whatever's going on is bad because the music tells us it's bad. You get this real kind of cool guttural throat chanting of the soundtrack and it's growing louder as Kay kind of gets up and she approaches the window. Then the camera point of view shot uh, shakes from outside and just when you think she's going to get it, uh, Tom Eagle, he brings in the kitchen what looks like looks like a stick of butter. I don't know what it is. 
and he's got a cup of Sanka to her. He, he brings it to her, and she kind of shakes off the uncomfortable heebie-jeebies, uh, and she kind of sips on the coffee. And and Tom pleads with uh, Tom Eagle pleads with her to take the day off because he, it's driving her crazy. She's just so tired and exhausted. But outside, we see Nahala, and he's kind of stoically watching the entire scene take place. Uh, Kay basically tells Tom Eagle to piss off, uh, you know, just leave me alone. Like, and she kind of says, it's time for you to hit the road, Jack. And she escorts Tom Eagle to the door. And uh, as Tom Eagle uh, leaves out the front door, you immediately see a pair of boots kind of walk up the steps in the back. And you just know that when Kay swings that door open, she's going to die. But instead, uh, there's just a cute little black kitten on the doorstep. And that she opens that door and that cat quickly scurries inside. Nahala? Uh, who knows? Don't know at this point. But the cat is kind of a pervert. It watches Kay uh, get undressed and get in the shower. And then you get a kind of a close-up of Curious Cat's face. And Kay's rinsing off. And it's just kind of a weird scene because the cat's watching her. And, you know, but then she kind of gets the feeling like she's being watched. And then um, right when you think that she's going to get Norman baited, uh, she jerks the curtain back just to see that little cat sitting on the Pendleton bathroom rug. And uh, she kind of goes, get out of here. And, you know, he kind of scurries off. And then we get a brief introduction to Kachina Dolls by Professor Paul Michaels, and he's kind of telling this group of people on a guided tour of the museum. Uh, you know, shockingly, after the, the gruesome murders that just took place the previous night, it's, it's business as usual, apparently. Uh, they finally picked up uh, Rick Haley's body because it's no longer there, but the glass and everything's all cleaned up. And uh, Kay goes on to interrupt the tour to, to tell him that she's been really troubled here of late. Uh, given all that's going on right there. No, they weren't playthings. Kachina dolls were considered very sacred. The medicine men used them in mystical and religious rituals. They would often bury their dead with the dolls. In fact, they believed that the spirit of the dead person entered the doll. This is an excellent collection of Kachina dolls. And uh, this little fearsome creature with a bloodstained knife is a Soya Wuti, or the Monster Woman. Uh, if you have any other questions, please feel free to ask any of the staff. Okay, thank you. So, yeah, again, whoever did this is did their research. Again, it's not uh, not entirely inaccurate, you know what I mean? But uh, anyway, I don't know what kind of correlation they're trying to, to make here uh, with Kachina dolls and, and ghost dance, but it's kind of a reach. But anyway... Uh, Paul, you know, uh, uh, tells her, you know, he's definitely in the friend zoned. Uh, he's been friend zoned <laughs> and he, he tells her though, that he's got some info for Kay. And it turns out that the private collection they got from the Linden foundation last semester, uh, had a diary, uh, in it that belonged to some prison guard. And apparently the prison guard wrote about some hellraiser named Nathan Hall, Indian, it seems that Nathan Hall was a prisoner at some territorial prison in Yuma. And get this, Paul suspects that Nathan Hall ain't even his real name. Uh, listen, I may have found something. Remember the private collection that came in last semester? That's the one from the Linden Foundation? That's it. I found an old diary in there that belonged to a guard at a territorial prison. And there's some references to a real hellraiser from the San Andrew group. Uh... Every time the guy referred to him, he called him Nathan Hall, Indian. You know how they used to give the Indian prisoners Christian names? Matt Hall. Look, it's a long shot, but who knows? 
da She finally lands on the holla, which is kind of a tough stretch for Polly. And then, but uh, as they're walking and talking down the hall, we see this little native girl with Acasio's. Uh, the little native girl at a, that was at, at Acasio's, she's kind of casually looking at something in a case and, and being curious. She sort of starts wandering away and down the empty hall, she passes Paul kind of in his office, frantically flipping through the card catalog, which is a pretty cool throwback I haven't seen in a long while in a movie. Uh, and then she sneaks into this room labeled private. I, I think it says private. It's too blurry to tell or whatever. But anyway, and laid out on the table is that same figure that we saw Aranjo uh, accosting earlier. Uh, they really should get a dang lock for that door, I think. But uh, creepy music uh, crescendos as the little girl pulls back the cover, uh, revealing a stunningly realistic-looking mummy. I mean, seriously, whoever did the art design props on this picture, they did an amazing job. I mean, honestly, if you have uh, ever seen the, the mummies uh, of Guanajuato, uh, it, they look like those. I mean, it is a dead ringer, no pun intended, uh, mummy. It's really good. But anyway, the kid decides that it's going to be a great idea to break off a finger and take it home. I mean, most kids, you know, want a stuffed animal or a license plate with their name on it. Uh-uh. Nuh-uh. Not, not this kid. She wants a, a, a 100-year-old crusty phalange. Uh, but after removing the digit, she casually covers him back up and skips off. And next thing we see, Kay, she's working at her desk, and suddenly she begins to hear the soft whispering chant, that guttural throat chanting, down the museum hall. And she gets up from her desk, and she makes her way through the empty room. The chanting grows louder and louder. And just as she approaches a display of ancient artifacts, Paul suddenly emerges from what I thought at first was the bathroom, but it turns out he's in the library office. But either way, bathroom or library, I, I usually get a lot of reading done in either place, eh? Uh, anyway, he hands her these x-rays that they've taken of the mummy, and, and Kay goes to the light board, and she kind of pins them up. Uh, and she kind of starts waving her pencil around like a real genius, and uh, she calls Paul over to show him something in, in the mummy's chest. Is it the Tuma? Uh, is it a broken rib? Who knows? It's not the Tuma. But uh, anyway, it's, uh, it's time to find out. Uh, there's only one way, and that's to open him up like a canoe. Uh, whew, Kay starts kind of carefully snipping away at the wrappings. And I mean, I'm, I'm telling you, this this is really convincing. Again, I cannot brag on the art department enough. The prop team of Larry Brickman, Alan Perry, Ann Michaels, Jim Craig, Trisha Wilson, they did an outstanding job with this mummy. Uh, it's crazy to think that most of the people involved with this movie, this is their one and only film credit. Uh, I mean, as they're cutting, the, the wraps are like literally like disintegrating or falling apart. It's like they really are a hundred years old. The dust is coming off of them, and it's really—it's so realistic. It's crazy, and I watched the scene like over like 10 times in a row and, and I'm still floored. I was just kind of rewinding back and forth, back and forth. And uh, as she's cutting, we get a shot of the elder uh, Ocasio, Ocasio from earlier. Uh, it's kind of like one of those cross cuts uh, editing tricks. And Ocasio is kind of sitting by the fire and he's unwrapping the bandages uh, on the stolen finger and this really beautiful juxtaposition shot. And, and I'm telling you, uh, once you see this mummy in full light, it's even better. The, the hands are unrealistically tiny, withered, and frail. The 
the skin, it just, it appears to be stretched and dried and kind of pulling away at the bone. I mean, I, again, I, I, it's unbelievable that it looks like a real mummy and and to be such a low budget flick, I'm just, I'm amazed at the design of this thing. And then you go back to Ocasio and, uh, he wraps the, the filched finger around this tiny little, uh, doll. I don't want to say voodoo doll, but I will just to kind of give you a reference. Uh, he kind of holds it against the flames just to kind of give it some light. He's kind of admiring his work. And then the professor, uh, meanwhile, is uh, the professors are, have removed the top half of the body and the wrappings and revealing the rib cage, the left arm, and just masterful, masterful prop here. I can't even believe my eyes when I look at it. And then now it's time for the money shot, baby. They, they pull back the bandages. They start snipping around the head. And... Oh, you're kidding me. Oh, my God. It looks like a fifth grade paper mache project. It's... Talk about blue balls. It's terrible. <laughs> Seriously, I laughed out loud. Uh, those prisoners in Alcatraz constructed a more convincing head out of toilet paper and barber hair than this. It looks like the, the budget for this prop ran out just about the neckline. It is the most ridiculous thing that uh, I, I've seen. It's just such a letdown. Uh, it really is a letdown. But anyway, they get the thing entirely uncovered. And, and then it's Kay decides out of nowhere that it's time to close up for the night. I mean, seriously, Kay, like. You are literally three seconds away from uh, uh, finding out what that thing is. It doesn't even have skin. You don't even have to cut it. You just put your hand in it and poke around in the rib cage, and it's right there. It's right there. It's right there. Uh, don't ask me. Even Paul is looking at her like, WTF? Like, what's going on? Well, it turns out old Tom Eagle has some unfinished business. Yes, yes, he wants to have dinner with Kay. And, uh,. Uh, so now we know why Paul is getting corpse blocked here. Uh, before she leaves, Paul does feed her a little more information. So you're so in the friend zone, Paul. You just give it up. Tom wants to go to dinner. You want to come along? No, no thanks. I got a whole mountain of time. So. Oh, before you go, I found some more references to Inahala in an old BIA journal. And it seems that at the time of the ghost dance... Nahala was a renegade, couldn't accept the dream of peace with the whites. So he practiced his own brand of religion. Ritual murders, burnings, torture. And he was from this area? He came here in 1894 after kidnapping a white woman and making her his wife. But she seems to have fallen under his spell because she joined his cult and they became a murderous team. Oh, Jesus. Yeah, but that's not all. The woman's sister spent months trying to track them down, trying to convince her to leave him and go back with her. And they uh, tortured her for days before they killed her. Come on, her own sister? Yeah, nice couple, huh? In this Indian Mickey and Mallory Knox, and, you know, this is this is not part of the actual story at all as far as the ghost dance is concerned. This is This tripe is full-on full fiction. So, yeah, not only does he get corpse blocked, he also uh, gets third wheel invited to her and Tom Eagle's uh, rendezvous. Oh, Paul. Oh, Paul. 
Anyway, uh, on the way to dinner, uh, Kay drives down this dark, deserted road. Uh, cue spooky music. Uh, then out of nowhere, Nahala appears in the, the greatest Superman pose ever uh, right in front of her. Quite shocked, she slams on the car uh, in reverse and she speeds away, leaving Nahala kind of growing smaller and smaller through the windshield glass. Uh, doing a spin out, she, she turns around and starts hightailing it out of there. Uh, and as she's looking back through the back glass, Nahala appears again, which is kind of cool because you weren't expecting him to be in the back. You're expecting him to be from the front, but he kind of you know runs across the road really quick, and the and you see him through the back glass as she's turned around. It's pretty awesome. Uh, pressing down the gas pedal, she really hauls booty out of there for a third time, and then yep, you guessed it. Right in front of her again is, is Nahala, and this time she almost hits him to avoid running over him. She just jerks the wheel to the left. She causes the Jeep to run straight down an embankment and uh, uh, screams hysterically uh, as the figure approaches. No worries, though. Uh, it's just a cop uh, who takes her to safety. You think it's Nahala, but it's not. And again, this is one another one of my favorite sequences in the entire in the entire movie because it, it harkens back to this old Twilight Zone episode, The Hitchhiker. And uh, you'll certainly know what I'm, I'm talking about if you've ever seen it. And I'm I'm a huge fan of the Twilight Zone. And any time I can sneak a, a reference to the show in, uh, I'm going to do that. But anyway, uh, in the scene though, Kay carries herself pretty convincingly here. Uh, it's it's a good scene, and uh, again, one of my favorites. At the police station, uh, Kay is, is working with a uh, suspect sketch artist to come up with a charcoal uh, rendering of Nahala. And what we get here is pretty much a spot-on drawing. It's pretty uncanny, just given the description of uh, you know this dark, deserted road. Going 55 miles an hour, she's uh, pretty, pretty spot-on with her description, and the guy captures it perfectly. Uh, the police lieutenant kind of hears her story and he's very skeptical uh of this you know phantom ghost along the the highway you would be amazed at what people will do doctor with or without a full moon lieutenant i think i understand your position quite well and i can't blame you if you just can't accept this as a serious occurrence that's just a minute Nobody is taking this lightly. Most of all, not me. We're talking about murder here, Doctor, too, to be exact. And there's nothing supernatural about that. Uh, he blames the full moon uh, on her hysteria. Uh, it's the equivalent of just blaming it on uh, that time of the month, I suppose. Uh, very kind of misogynistically, like, dismisses her story completely. But of course, old Tom Eagle shows up at the police station to, to you know, rally to her defense. And Tom Eagle, again, he, he tells her that she's just tired. And I don't know what it is, but everybody's always telling this woman how tired she is. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I've been tired too, you know, but uh, a good nap, uh, it would help. But I don't think it would solve all of the maniacal problems, you know, especially when it comes to, to the murder of two people. But, uh, uh, you know... I don't think that's just something you can sleep off. But uh, anyway, to prove uh, to prove her point, she shows Tom Eagle the sketch that the artist did, and she tells him that it's an exact match of the body uh, in the museum. Uh, 
how she knows that, I, I don't know. But Tom Eagle, he, he really wants to believe her, but he just can't bring himself to, to, to do it. Uh, meanwhile, though, old, old friend-zoned Paul is, is pouring himself into his studies. He's thumbing through this giant encyclopedia that looks sort of like the Necronomicon. And uh, suddenly he, he hits three cherries. Uh, it turns out that uh, the girl that Nahala had kidnapped went by the name of Melissa Stewart. And he's got a photo ID of her um, that he found in this book. And not only that, he also got a photo of Nathan Hall uh, in full jailhouse regalia. It's kind of like the, the comedic, you know, black and white, uh, you know, stripes when you think of a prisoner. And he takes it to the exam room to do uh, to kind of compare it against the body that they have stretched out on the table. And bingo, it is an exact match. Uh, as he's kind of pawing over the face of the mummy, the lights suddenly uh, uh, cut out. And just when you think it's going to be the hash-slinging slasher, uh, you'd definitely be wrong, dead wrong. It's, it's Nahala, of course, obviously. He just starts tossing Paul around the lab like he's a rag doll. And just as Paul tries to escape out the, the, the door, you know, Nahala puts a knife like square in his back from across the room. It's a pretty pretty awesome bullseye that he, that he uh, you know, tosses there like a dart. Uh, Paul slinks into like, this bloody heap. And then you get this another really kind of odd subliminal shot of this elder holding a bloody heart as Tom Eagle jolts awake again. Again, I'm not really sure, you know, what that's supposed to symbolize, if it's a flashback or even what that is. But apparently it's Tom Eagle. So uh, I draw the conclusion that, that Tom Eagle has no business telling anybody about their sleep disorders. Uh, <laughs> that's just my two cents. But back at the museum, uh, Kay arrives to find numerous open books, you know, cheeseburger wrappers, apple cores, and microfiche that, that Paul had left scattered all over the place. And she comes across a note that he had scribbled down reading... Colby's Southwest Indian uh, Compendium, 1911. Well, Kay gets on the horn, and she's trying to track this anthology down. And she's heads over to one of the grubbiest libraries ever captured on celluloid. It's, it's pretty dilapida dilapidated. Obviously, it was maybe the, the tossed-out books or the banned books well, they, they had access to film in. But... Uh, Anyway, uh, just watching that, it just makes your living room, you know, smell like water damage. And she's kind of acting like a mime in a box. And she's literally, like, kind of comedically, like, feeling her way across this sea of dusty old tattered encyclopedias. It's, it's kind of funny how she, uh, I don't know anybody that's ever looked for a book in a library quite the way that she does. But gosh darn it, she's acting. But uh, anyway, she finds this one, uh, it's really conveniently sticking out, and she opens the book to a page, uh, to the exact page with a photo of an imprisoned Nathan Hall. And there's also a photo of this old white woman that he's snagging on the side. And are you ready for this? Are you ready? It is a spitting image of Kay, uh, dated back 50 years before, and she's dressed like a gypsy. Da, da, da. There you go. There's the there's the rub. Uh, this discovery sends Kay uh, completely over the edge, and she hot foots it over to Tom Eagle's house. She barges in. She slams that encyclopedia right down on his giant mahogany wood desk. She's armed with the police sketch, the photo, the name. She's got it all confirmed. 
and we've got ourselves a serious Nahala problem. It's so concerning that Tom Eagle even gets out his readers, and he takes a second, a third, even a fourth look at this thing. The only thing that he can really do to help her is kind of creep up behind her and, and, and smell her hair for about three or four times. That's about all he's got left. But anyway, Tom Eagle load up, and they go out to see Ocasio on the res. And he gives Kay the lowdown on the way, on the way out, uh, telling her that some people consider Ocasio a sorcerer. There are some people who think this Ocasio is a sorcerer. Anywho, they get out to uh, Ocasio's place, and he's kind of sitting out front like he's been waiting on him. Uh, after the reintroductions are complete, Tom Eagle tells him that the white people are going crazy, uh, and the name of Nahala is being tossed around. And Ocasio says, you know, that, that white people shouldn't be speaking of things that they don't know about. And he says uh, speaking about such things turns them into, like, frightened children. Uh, he, he turns uh, his digs next to Tom Eagle. He said, you know, uh, you should know because you're one of them. And Tom has this reaction, kind of like, why? He kind of jerks around, you know, and clearly that, that was a, a deep cut. And, uh, you know, Tom Eagle just ex he begs him basically to explain just what the heck is going on around here. Uh, but Ocasio never really agrees to this. But anyway, Tom calls Kay over, uh, who's been waiting by the Jeep this entire time. And, uh, oh, the Jeep is also miraculously fixed, uh, even though she had wrecked it just, I guess, the night before. But anyway, uh, he tells Ocasio, Tom Eagle does, that, uh, that Kay's from the university and that she thinks that she that she's seen Nahala and nobody believes her, uh, not the police, not, you know, any, nobody believes her. And the old man says that, uh, you know, he, he's not a teacher and this ain't school, baby. Uh, you either know these things or you don't. And if you want my help, you just got to meet me at the excavation site at the very first light of morning. Ocasio. My name is Thomas Eagle. We come to speak to you about the trouble in the city. Many things have happened which the men in the city cannot understand. Now, the name Nahala is spoken. They cannot understand themselves. How can they understand what goes on around them? And they speak of Nahala. Why? to run from their own shadows like frightened children. Just as you did, Ocasio. I only ask that you speak with us. That's all. So the next thing that we see is, uh, I guess it's later that evening, dusk, because he's talking about you know, meeting them at the first light of morning. But what a light it is, because the next shot is, is uh, you know, Ocasio... Uh, kind of backed against this gorgeous landscape. It's, it's a really beautiful establishing shot, just kind of like I said, at dusk. And even though my VHS copy is pretty cruddy, the, the colors were still popping with really deep blues, pinks, and oranges. And just coupled with, you know, silhouettes of cacti and sagebrush. Uh, again, it's, it's, it's a really wonderful shot. Uh, surprising, uh, given the, the, the movie that we're talking about. But Buffa, he, he really does have a good cinematic eye. But uh, we, we're treated to that, and then the camera kind of pans down to Ocasio. He, he's sitting around a fire, and he's kind of tinkering with the figurine. 
um, with the wrapped the that he wrapped the finger to, and he, he picks up a sage bundle. He kind of waves the smoke over the entire set, you know, kind of giving it a, a good wash. The dynamic duo, however, of Tom Tom Eagle and Kay, they're they're back at the university, uh, basically doing university things. Uh, when suddenly there's a pounding at the door, and, and Kay tells Tom Eagle to go see what's going on, and what you think is going to kind of lead up to uh, Nahala, uh, you know, gut shanking somebody. It, it turns out to, to be this young student returning a book to Paul, which is funny because, you know, neither Tom nor Kay have mentioned anything about him missing. The lab was turned over last time we saw it. Nothing is mentioned to that about that. But anyway, uh, Tom Eagle kind of goes back into the building um, and he realizes that he's locked out. So he goes tells the, 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 the student to, to phone the security guard. I guess, you know, instead of just beating on the door like the student did to, to get Kay's attention. I guess, the you know, waiting patiently for the next hour or so for the security guard to show up is the next best option. But uh, meanwhile, Kay is kind of, for some reason, just roaming up and down the hallways. It uh, doesn't really explain why. She's checking doors to see if they're locked. She's jiggling a few handles, and then she finally comes to Paul's office, which is mysteriously unlocked. Uh, being the you know the nosy Nelly that she is, she goes inside and and uh, through this other door to the lab. Finally, where the X-rays were still up on the light board, and she re- she removes the picks and she turns the lights off behind the board and kind of leaving her almost a near pitch black darkness. And she's kind of feeling her way over to the mummy slab and you know turns on this overhead light. And she's just got to take a peek one last time under that sheet. And when she does, it reveals Paul's uh, ghoulishly gray, you know, Dawn of the Dead cadaver on the gurney. You know, and he's kind of clutching this the hilariously large book about Southwest Indians. Kay screams and she, she backs away, causing Paul's corpse to kind of fall lifelessly to the floor. And she's backing away. She runs right into the arms of Nahala himself. She manages to free herself and she kind of runs out of the room and down this hall and she's screaming for Tom Eagle and she's running by display case after display case of like rocks and stones. I mean, there must be like a hundred plus rocks in these showcases. Uh, I, you know, I, I, I'm looking it up, you know what I mean? It's, it's an actual museum and I just, I don't know like what the, the curiosity of just go looking at old rocks would be, but who am I uh, to, to judge? But anyway, finally she kind of runs through the rock department and into the, the bird wing of the museum and uh, see what I did there (laughs) and she's like this kind of log rolling her body like just writhing over the cases of of, you know stuffed birds and hysterically screaming and she's lost her ever-loving mind apparently at this point and she soon goes quiet as you know as she's kind of hiding ducking down behind these birds the mountains display and it looks exactly like something that um, would have been at, at the Tulsa Zoo circa 1982 or pretty, pretty much any zoo in the, in the 80s probably. And of course, you know what happens next. She's not paying any attention to her surroundings and uh, she hits this giant glowing red button and it causes the narration on the display to begin. And it's that same sterile 1970s voiceover, you know, that you always hear and things like that. In fact, I think it's, there was one guy that narrated all of those things and it reminded me of the earthquake machine at the Tulsa Zoo back in the day. But anyway, um, that alerts Nahala to her whereabouts and uh, then some stuff happens because it's too dark to see uh, on the on the transfer but it looks like Kay's kind of like crawling all over the floor for some reason 
Um, what's cool about this, though, is that uh, all these different bird voices are quietly echoing as, as she's trying to hide. It's really creepy and very atmospheric and, again, really well done. But uh, when she finally does get the nerve to stand up because she thinks that she's safe, we get the greatest shot of the entire film. It's Nahala, and he's directly behind her. Uh, and standing against this stuffed bird and it's this mounted bald eagle actually and its wings are spread and you know the, the silhouette looks like like we said uh you know earlier that it, it'd be some kind of angel or is he some kind of demon it's it's just a really fantastic shot the camera's angled upward giving the guy the total power dominance over her creates good tension i mean it's, it's a great shot anyway she slowly backs into him obviously he grabs her he spins her then we get like a series of quick cuts to the birds, uh, you know, right on the beat of the pounding music. And it's really cool, uh, again, the way it was uh, edited together. Uh, it's very well crafted. And the scene ends on a close-up of a horned owl. And I don't know if that was intentional or just accidental. I, I thought maybe it was an obvious homage to, uh, homage to, excuse me, to uh, native stories about the owl man. Again, I'm not really sure. Nahala like then like chases her down, uh, through a hallway into the lab where Paul and the mummy were still lying dead, and just when Nahala seems like he's ready to slay Kay, he just stops and uh, dead in his tracks. He uh, turns his attention to the mummy. He uncovers it and kind of begins to meticulously run his hands all over it. Uh, Kay sees her chance and tries to slip out the door. Uh-uh. Uh, that's a no, dog. Uh, Nahala pulls her back into the room by her hair and he kind of starts to slowly approach her again and he he brings his knife up like he's going to put it right in her forehead but then he like forcefully like slams it on the table instead. Kay, uh, Kay's like screaming for her life and Nahala begins to like comfort her by awkwardly like stroking her hair. It kind of reminded me of Kong, uh, King Kong, uh, the way he did Fei Ray back in 33 but uh, realizing what he's doing, he's kind of jerked a... Uh, kind of, you know, jerked out of his eye porking by uh, dragging Kay over to the mummy and ramming his knife into his chest. Uh, he reaches in and pulls out, it looks like a bunch of toenails uh, and a pearl That's uh, what it looks like. It turns out it was right because as he kind of, you know, un unravels it or whatever, it's a talon necklace uh, and it's got this little Aztec Mayan looking, you know, god, you know, pendant uh, on it. And he puts it around Kay's neck, and he kind of stands back admiring it. And as the camera pulls in for a close-up of Nahala, you know, kind of giving Kay his, his best, you know, warrior, stoic warrior stare, you know, Kay kind of starts clutching at his, his shoulders, and it looks like they're going to start some, you know, uh, start making out. And then Tom Eagle starts calling for, for Kay from the next room, and the music kind of changes, signaling that Kay is now under the spell of Nahala. Uh, you know, then Tom Eagle, he enters the room and he, he finds uh, Kay kind of standing at Paul's desk with like nothing but this tiny little, you know, green desk lamp flicked on. And he calls to her several times and it goes unanswered. And, you know, he asks her a couple of times, like, what's the matter? What's wrong with you? She doesn't say anything, you know, and then she kind of turns around and, you know, uh, very, uh, condescendingly is like i'm just tired remember you, you go home and i'll uh uh and she grabs this phone uh on the desk and it's it's one of the 1982 phones you know them, them suckers got some weight on it bubba 
and uh, she, she picks it up and she, she cracks him right across the dome with it. And old Tom Eagle, he's, he's smooth out, boy. I mean, he is. He is. He is laid out. And uh, she steps right over that sucker and gets in her jeep and she deuces. I'm out. The next thing that we see is uh, the jeep, uh, Kay's jeep, pulling up at maybe the excavation site. It's, it's dark again, so it's really kind of hard to tell. Anyway, she, she gets out and she, she scurries up the hillside because just in the distance we see the headlights of Tom's car. And he's kind of pulling up right behind her just a few seconds. And as Tom Eagle looks anxiously around, uh, all of a sudden this, this large round face of Ocasio suddenly appears through the window. Uh, full disclosure, that, that one kind of made me jump too. It's a pretty good scare because, uh, again, you're not really expecting Ocasio to be there maybe k or something but it was a good scare but anyway tom eagle and acasio uh go off in this cave and acasio tells him that uh he's got to do exactly what he says uh, if he ever wants his woman back and of course tom eagle agrees to the terms and he he tells tom eagle to go go down to the house by the road uh, out by the way and, and and find this little leather bag Bring it back, and you got you got to burn the entire thing, including the body. You got to burn all of it—the the mummy. You got to burn everything. He says, "Go and get back." Uh, it. This is kind of awesome. He's like, "Don't stop for anyone, not even a woman." I have no idea why he throws that line in there. It looks sounds like it was maybe ad libbed or something, but he's just like, uh, just no distractions. Just go get there and come back. But I, I love that part. Now, Tommy, go. Now you must help. Just tell me what's happening and I'll do what you ask. This much I can tell you. If you will do just as I say, you will have your woman back. If not, she is forever lost. I'll do as you say. There's a house just beyond. Inside there, you must find a leather pouch no bigger than your hand. When you have it, return the pouch to the body and burn everything. One is not cremated. The soul will wander forever. Stop for no one. Above all, the woman. So Tom Eagle, he, he goes off to get the pouch, and he's in the house, and stuff happens because, you guessed it, it's too dark to see. Uh, you can kind of make out Tom sort of like fumbling around with the nightstand, the covers on the bed, the shelf. I mean, he's kind of flipping the joint basically. And, uh, you know, if he's at the Casio's house, I'd, I'd be so mad like when uh, I got home, uh, you know, making a mess like that for really no reason. And if he's at Nahala's, I'd want to kill him for sure. Uh, it's such an unnecessary cluttering, but uh, Tom's kind of fumbling around some more, and he, he sticks his hand in what looks like blood, and, and I, I prayed that that was blood uh, because it's near the window under the bed, and uh, Tom Eagle pulls back the curtain and out falls the bloated corpse of Nahala's old lady, Lena. Uh, from the beginning of the movie, uh, you know, the one that was kind of complaining at him, the whole kind of, you know, barking at him at the first. But, uh, you know, it's kind of funny because I think if I was going to hide a dead body in a house behind a curtain uh, facing an open window would probably not be my first go to. Uh, this kind of a obvious spot uh, to be able to spot that. But anyway, uh, Tom Eagle falls backwards onto the floor. He's, he's in shock, obviously. And uh, as he falls backwards, he, he discovers some loose bricks uh, on the floor and he kind of rips them up and, and he finds the jackpot. There's little, the little pouch that Ocasio was talking about. 
and he's about to get up and leave uh, Kay when when Kay in a manic frenzy attacks him from behind, and she's like gnawing and pawing and clawing all over him. And I mean, this white girl's like an animal, and she's boy, I, she's turning his face into like a Jackson Pollock or something. She's scratching him and grabbing at him, and she gets him in like this rear naked chokehold, and and she kind of renders him goofy enough to kind of release the pouch from his kung fu grip. And dazed, Tom kind of stumbles to his feet, and he's he's clattering all over the mess he's made, just trying to get his feet underneath him. But then we go back to the cave, and, and Acasio, he's got a fire built, and he's praying, and he's slicing and eating what looks kind of to me like ginger root. I'm not really sure what it is, but uh, whatever it is, it's working, because his, his head's tilted back, and his shoulders are kind of slumped forward, and he's praying. And, and I'm guessing it's Wapo. That's what uh, Sal, Salcedo, uh, that's what he was so i'm assuming that was his native language that he was praying in um but it ends with him summoning nahala over and over again just kind of taunting him until that big old indian appears out of the shadows of course he's got his knife out Cassio like uh puts a little tobacco on the fire and it flames up real good and he's kind of hissing at nahala and each time that, as he does the fire kind of blows up a little bit higher and higher Nahala's kind of really cautiously approaching Acasio, and he's adding some more fuel to the fire. And with one final flame and a big old hiss, uh, Nahala's kind of thrown backwards by some unseen force. Uh, as, as he gets kind of back to his feet, ready to attack, Acasio uh, pulls the effigy uh, with the finger on it out of his bag and kind of stabs at it with a, with a blade. And Nahala's sort of howling, howling in pain, and he's clutching his side. Uh, Nahala then starts kind of making some desperate stabs at the air with his knife, and Acasio's kind of taunting him, just running the knife edge over and over and over that doll, just cutting deeper and deeper, just slicing it. To add insult to injury, he kind of then lowers it onto the fire, uh, causing Nahala to kind of writhe and pop like fry bread grease. Uh, Acasio's waving the doll over the flame. It's getting higher and higher, and the flames are just kind of licking at it and kissing it. And uh, hearing its constant moaning, uh, Kay, out of nowhere, she, she runs over to his side. Uh, and the figure figurine kind of starts to catch a little bit of fire, and, and Nahala does himself, and his his body's kind of smoking, and Kay's knelt knelt down beside him, and she's crying, and, and then um, Nahala sort of makes his journey, I guess, and uh, that's enough to just enrage Kay. She she picks up the knife that he dropped and starts to attack Tom Eagle, who's always late to the party. All of a sudden, Tom Eagle appears out of nowhere. She starts swinging the knife at him madly, and he kind of catches her wrist in his left hand. And I mean, he smooth cold cocks, <laughs> cocks her with his right. I mean, he gives her a, a solid rap on the beard. And uh, Acasio uh, yells for Tom Eagle, like, snatch that necklace off of her. Uh, but before he can even get the words out, Nahala has once again risen and he gut checks Acasio with his own knife. It's such a dastardly move to stab a man with his own knife. And Acasio sort of falls over in a heap. And uh, his last, you know, uh, movement, he, he tosses the, the action, he tosses the little voodoo doll right into the fire. And that causes Nahala to burst into flames. And if he wasn't dead before, uh, he's certainly dead now. And then you kind of crossfade and the doll slowly kind of turns to ash. And I think like uh, Tom starts feeling a little guilty over, you know, sucker punching his girl. So he kind of walks over and he's checking on her and she seems kind of dazed and I guess she's okay and he kind of gently lifts her up and he, he helps her walk out of the cave. And then next we're back at the lab 
and with Tom, Tom Eagle and Kay and the mummy are still there. And Tom flicks on the light and puts the covers back over him, uh, the mummy. And uh, Kay kind of stands behind him with her arms kind of folded, looking exhausted and embarrassed and almost like beaten down, I guess, um, over trying to murder Tom Eagle. <laughs> well, doing what Acasio had told him to do, um, which, you know, now that I think about it, nobody even went back to check on Acasio. He's, I guess, probably still laid in that cave, I guess. We're not really sure what happened to him, but. Uh, Tom picks up a bottle of rubbing alcohol and he starts to pour it all over the mummy. And again, I'm not I'm not sure, uh, you know, if inside the University Museum is the best place for like a pop up crematorium. But that's the best that Tom's got. He's not going to take him back out to the desert. He's just going to burn him right there in the lab. Anyway, Kay starts kind of fidgeting with her necklace uh, and she's kind of carefully watching Tom flick the bick and uh, get ready to light it up. And just when he's about to put the flame on, uh, the mummy hand reaches out from under the, the white sheet and grabs Tom's hand as it's holding the lighter. It was a nice little jump scare because you think it's going to be Kay that does something, but the mummy suddenly comes to life. And in the same time that happens, Kay grabs a scalpel uh, off the uh, a medical table and she kind of slowly turns to Tom Eagle. And we get this really killer freeze frame uh, right on her face. The soundtrack blares and, and Tom Eagle screams and the camera zooms in on the face of Kay. And then it kind of crossfades over back to the Kachina dolls that, that Paul was talking about in the earlier scene. And then fade to black and then credits roll. So uh, again, uh, they're tossing the Kachina dolls back in there. It has nothing really to do with the ghost dance or anything like that, but that's that's it, Bubba. That's, that's pretty much it. Uh, you know, there, there's nothing really groundbreaking here. It's it's not it's not a bad flick. It's it's a mediocre mix of thriller and and mystery and horror. And you know, as far as the native aspect is concerned, uh, you know, I'm always kind of aware of this idea of the mystical medicine man uh, in our on-screen portrayals. I mean, you see it time and time again. Um, the idea has been. Uh, romanticized almost to the point of parody i mean we yeah we we have spiritual leaders and healers in our community and and you know speaking strictly from my own personal experiences is you know they're, they're nothing comparable to to the uh imageries that are portrayed in film you know i, I wouldn't look at them any different than you say a, a regular church member would look at their spiritual figurehead you know uh, most of the the people that i've have had contact with they're they're all very humble. They're, they're soft spoken. They're they're funny and and they're serious. You know, kind of all at the same time. And they're they're kind hearted and uh, you know, just they're just amazing people. And they just have a way of making you feel better just by speaking to them. You know, it's uh, healers and medicine men and even just elders in our community. Uh, you know, within the tribe, they just, you know, make you feel good. Uh, just, just talking to them. And, uh, it, they're not like some soothsayer with spells and potions and chants and hallucinogens. And, you know, it's really things like that, that kind of, that, that get under my skin. I don't appreciate, you know, Hollywood, you know, trying to paint them with that kind of brush. Cause it just, it doesn't really fit. Um, it's, it fits a certain image of what you think it is, but it's, that's very, very far from the truth. 
you know, and there's nothing really like that portrayed in the movie, which I kind of thought was a little refreshing. I mean, sure, Aranjo uh, is, is using bad medicine for sinister purposes, but, you know, it's played pretty straight, you know, except for the, the one scene where he kind of summons Nahala. Uh, and same goes for Acasio, you know. I mean, in order to defeat uh, the evil spirit, he, he smudges himself. He smudges the area, and you know, for protection, and he prays. And that's all he really does, you know. I mean, he doesn't really have any kind of spell or, you know what I mean? He just prays. And so, you know, there's the over-the-top burning scene, you know. But you kind of need that in order to create some tension, I guess, and drama. For those kind of unaware of the culture. So I'm not, you know, I'm okay with that, I guess. It just kind of needed that. And they didn't, you know, they didn't need to make either character a Superman. You know, I mean, Nahala, you know, has this kind of misplaced need for power that's never really fleshed out. And we don't know why he's, he's hungry for this power, but we just know that he is. And the only kind of conclusion that I could draw was that uh, maybe within the 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 community he he's mocked or ridiculed or you know maybe he, he feels embarrassed that he's not as good as Acasio or, or whatever uh again it's I'm just basing this mainly with the scene with Lena when she's telling him you know that he's he's a fool and that that all he kind of does is hope that somebody comes to see him and Acasio uh he's just kind of appears to be a regular guy who just sort of knows what's going on and he has the the the, the prayers and the medicines uh, at his disposal to to stop it you know i mean he he's not dressed with the <laughs> the stereotypical you know buckskin friend shirt or, or anything like that he's just a normal guy uh just like a normal like a normal elder and you know i, I don't know i i wouldn't say it's not a hundred percent accurate but I think they got about half right, which is, you know, a lot more than I could say for most of the Hollywood portrayals. I mean, uh, all the other natives in the film are pretty spot on. I mean, you have the elders trying to tell the excavation team that they shouldn't be disturbing burial sites. Their disdain for the, the at the lack of university concern. Uh, Tom Eagle's kind of juxtaposition of leaving the res, but not really being able to leave the culture and you know there's a lot of decent stuff there you know you just kind of have to dig a little bit for it no pun intended so uh cigar store groaners we're gonna go over that list really quick before we get out of here uh number one drunk indian no i am shocked there is not one drop of alcohol nor is it even mentioned uh in this movie does the lead character have a white best friend or girlfriend i wouldn't say tom eagle is the lead here and nobody really wants to get with Kay like that, but him, you know, and according to Acasio, Tom left his culture behind. So it kind of makes perfect sense that he might want a white woman. Uh, I, I begrudgingly give it a groan. Um, I'm kind of nitpicking it, I guess, but you can make a case against it, I suppose. Uh, number three, is there a medicine man or shaman? Bonus points if the lead character goes on a spiritual journey. Yes. Two, actually, you have uh, a Ronho and Acasio. Uh, one does kind of go on a pseudo spiritual journey, I guess, but it's kind of used for evil, uh, not enlightenment. So one groan, one groan there, uh, is the antagonist white or bonus points. If he or she turns out to be the hero. No, Nahala is clearly the bad guy here. The gray area here, I guess would be K, I suppose. Um, you know, one, the excavation team is is kind of looked at as something that they shouldn't be doing. The other is, you know, she has that evil turn, but that kind of happens really late in the film, so it's hard to count that, I guess. But she's under a spell, you know, against her own doing. It's not really her fault. I mean, 
She does have guilt over everything about what's going on in the movie. But uh, as for the hero of the picture, it ain't Tom Eagle. It's it's Ocasio. So I'm going to say he's the one that saved the day. So half a groan on that one. Number five, uh, native turncoat or sellout. Is there a character working for or with a white man? Uh, Tom Eagle, I guess. He's not really the hero. He's sort of a sellout who kind of distanced himself from the culture. He's never really wanted to defend it. He's always telling Kay to kind of get over it, you know, that, you know, what you got to leave all that behind and, you know, don't, don't listen to the stories and things like that. So, and the only thing he really does in the movie, honestly, is just advise Kay to rest. He doesn't really have any other part other than bringing Kay to Acasio, I guess. Oh, he really brought a Acasio, the leather pouch that he needs to destroy Nahala. So, I guess half a groan for, for Tom Eagle on that one. Bar fight, uh, number six. Nope, no mention of drugs or alcohol in this movie at all. Uh, is there a mention of peyote, though, or hallucinogenic drugs? No. Uh, surprising, considering that there's multiple smudge and ceremonial scenes, you would think that there would be some type of scene like that, but there's not. Did any characters use racial names or get called anything inappropriate? No. Again, uh, shocking for the time. Everything is spot on there. Um, does a character receive an Indian name? No, uh, that does not happen. And then number 10, is there any kind of mention of a scalping? And once again, that is no. So adding it all up, uh, Ghost Dance earns an incredible low score groan. Low groans of just three times I groaned in the movie. And a couple of those are actually just kind of half groans. So with a 50% accurate rate of native portrayals and the plausible low groan score i'm gonna give this a four uh on the indian taco scale you know the fry bread's there it's maybe a tad overcooked in spots and a little too chewy probably maybe for my liking uh the chili it's, it's hearty but it's kind of thin and soupy uh the lettuce is kind of maybe been sitting a while it's kind of starting to wilt and turn brown along the edges just a just a pinch uh and they just brought the wrong cheese It's it's got that dang uh, three cheese taco fiesta flavor instead of just regular old cheddar. Uh, it just tries to do too much, tries to be too much, but it's just, it's not the real thing. So uh, it was an excellent try. Uh, again, Ghost Dance is, is available on Amazon Prime and it's available uh, on DVD if you can find it, uh, VHS as well. Uh, hit eBay. I think it actually it's even on YouTube if you want to check it out on YouTube. Uh, free to watch, but if you can, pay for it, because uh, it's Nahala Gotta Eat. So to wrap up, uh, you know, appreciate you guys hanging in there with me. But oh, I know that some of these three-hour ones are kind of a, a commitment. Uh, no, Very few people are out there are going to sit and listen to me ramble about movies for, for three hours, but uh, I just feel there's a lot of things that need to be discussed with this. And uh, I'm going to try to sit down, I think, with next month's episode. Um, we're going to talk about Will Sampson. And I'm really going to try to, you know, on the, on the fives, uh, try to hit some movies that uh, are more uh, recognizable or, well, more famous, you know, uh, on the fives. And try to keep the runtime down to about an hour, 20 minutes if I can. Uh, somebody had mentioned possibly, you know, releasing this in two parts. But uh, I, I don't know. I'm going to go ahead and stick with the... The whole formula for the, for this one, and, and maybe next month we'll, we'll try again. And like I said, but I appreciate you guys hanging in there with me. Moto, I uh, hope you enjoyed the episode, and uh, we'll look forward to uh, seeing you seeing you next month. So, uh, for Scoden Cinema, I'm Turtle Boy. I will see you guys next time.